we had two main areas where he picked up most of the victims and one of them was pretty much the main drag that leads you into Homer, which is Highway 182. It's also known as New Orleans Boulevard. And it's lined at the end of the street with several motels, low-budget motels that uh, are known for drug activity, prostitution, uh, transients coming in and out looking for work. Um, so he would pick them up there. And we also had a second, what we called a target area, that uh, was in a neighborhood called Mechanicville, which is primarily populated by uh, black residents. He did prefer uh, the black male, uh, the short, stocky, thin, young black male was, was his preference. But if there was nothing available, like you said, availability, he would look for something similar. And if they happened to be white, then they happened to be white. In 1991, Jeffrey Dahmer is also flying under the radar of police. Jeffrey Dahmer's victim selection, young gay men, racial minority, allowed him to evade law enforcement for a longer period of time because he knew on some level that uh, this was a disenfranchised element of society that would go unnoticed were they to disappear. All I would have had to do was just stop for several months at a time and, and space it out, but it didn't happen that way. I just was driven to do it more frequently and more frequently. Couldn't control it anymore. Dahmer met Tracy Edwards outside the Grand Avenue Mall, and then he went to his apartment. Dahmer said, why don't you come back to my place, and I'll pay you some money to take some pictures of you, and we can watch some movies. And I thought about it, I said, yeah, he's pretty cool. I guess it's all right to go have a beer, because I thought he was an average guy. So he seemed normal to me, you know? Dahmer offers Tracy a drink of Roman Coke, because Dahmer was out of the sleeping pills. I had my head turned like this, looking at the fish tank, you know. Before I knew it, he threw a handcuff on me. Tracy said, okay, there must be something wrong with this guy. I'm just going to appease him and talk to him for a minute, especially when Dahmer pulled out this huge hunting knife. And Dahmer puts on The Exorcist Three, and they're watching it, and Dahmer's humming and rocking back and forth, almost going into a trance and saying things to Tracy Edwards like, oh, you wouldn't believe what I've done and now I'm gonna do to you and I wanna eat your heart. He actually put his head up against Tracy Edwards' chest just to listen to his heartbeat because he wanted to hear it before he murdered him. Like I knew that it was a life and death situation then, right? Yeah, yeah it was me against him. Eventually, Tracy gets loose punches him and he gets out of the apartment half naked wearing this one handcuff. Mr. Edwards is able to run onto the street and flag down a squad. And those two officers first just tried to use their key that they had for their police handcuffs. That key didn't work. And so they went back to the apartment thinking that they're just going to get the key from Dahmer and take those handcuffs off and that's going to be the end of it. The Green River Task Force still is looking for the lead that will break the case. In January of 1984, Gary Ridgway is divorced from his second marriage. He has one child, but is still working at the Kenworth Trucking Company. But in the past two years, he has killed 41 women. He spent so much time trolling the highway, picking women up, killing them, dumping their bodies. 
his true avocation and what he enjoyed doing was hunting and killing women. And he was proud of the fact that he was good at it. Low-risk victims would be prostitutes that eagerly get in your car for, for money, and they wouldn't be missed. Prostitutes are not, they're not as valued as much as a, a college person. Nobody will be missed. Angry residents are demanding police do more to stop the killings. When the news started reporting about the bodies being found along the Green River, there was an outrage in the public. There was an anger and a frustration. It was like, because all of the victims are prostitutes and runaways, are they less important? We are very disappointed in the focus of the media attention. The focus has constantly been on the fact that these women are prostitutes. That's not something we can stand for. These women are women first. And they're being killed. 1982, Gary Ridgway's first kill. At this point in Gary's life, he's in his early 30s. And at this particular time, a number of social environmental stressors happening to him. He was arrested for soliciting a prostitute and had just gone through his second divorce. The former is significant because two years prior to that, he was arrested for choking a prostitute. So there seems to be a pattern that was already ramping up, if you will, related to sexual and violent behavior. This guy killed her. After a while, I calmed down, and I killed a person, but it didn't relieve my uh, urge to kill somebody else. So a couple days later, I killed another person. Four more victims were discovered three in the river, and one on the riverbank. All of them had been strangled. It was only a few weeks after Wendy Coppo was found that they discovered um, another set of bodies uh, in the river. I think it was clear at that point that they were dealing with a serial killer. Our first victims were in the Green River. Both Wendy Caulfield and Deborah Bonner were found floating in the water. We had two other victims that he had placed in the water and put large rocks on them to hold them down. The detectives, as they're investigating um, the two in the river, they're doing a canvas. And that's when they come across the body of Opal Mills. She has her jeans around her neck, used as a ligature. And other than that, um, she's face down and nude. What's really important here is that Gary Ridgway is a serial sexual killer. And so the power and control that existed in his murders, I think, is extremely compelling. He said at times the idea that he was strangling someone at the point that he was also sexually assaulting his victims, that was such a feeling of omnipotence. I pick up women and I, I date them and I choked them from the back and... I didn't look at their face after I, I, I killed him. He was picking sex workers, many of them women of color. They had broken homes, they had been abused, they had people who didn't care for them, who didn't love them, and they were vulnerable. Ridgeway knew that they were the least likely to draw attention uh, if they went missing or if they turned up uh, dead. I don't think that the community in general reacted the same way as they had during the time that Ted Bundy was killing. And I think that was largely related to you know, attitudes that kind of marginalized the women that he victimized. 
And, you know, as a result of that, people didn't give it the same kind of attention as if you kill a sorority girl at the University of Washington. Patty says she wished we could do it all over again and I would never get in that car, hang out with that white man. Totally different experience. Context of white supremacy. Gusty Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Thursday, September 8, 2022. So I have been told this is our third and penultimate study session on Fred Rosen's The Bayou Strangler. We will pick up on chapter 10. Now the audio segments that we heard, the very first segment that was talking about Ronald Dominic from Bayou Blue 2011 documentary film talking about his what is it pension fetish uh, for black males and how he would go and hunt in the area with a lot of black people who lived in that part of Louisiana then we skip to Invisible Monster totally different documentary the only reason I watched it is because last week Rosen mentioned the gentleman doing the killings in Kansas and I didn't know anything really about the BTK killer I don't research serial killers so they have a lot of documentaries on him one of them is Invisible Monster I watched that one just because they mention Jeffrey Dahmer and Gary Ridgway in this documentary as well and so as I'm watching it and they're talking about all these folks as the so-called golden era of serial killers now that right there is even anyway but you heard the exact same sentiment with Dahmer in Wisconsin. Hey, go get these non-white men. They said marginalized groups, whatever that means. But you heard the same thing with Dahmer. And then you heard the same thing with Gary Ridgway right here in Seattle. Killing disproportionate number of non-white females. And I mean, it's so flagrant when you see a graphic of all of his victims particularly in an area like Washington State that doesn't even have a whole lot of black people and wow he killed a lot of non-white females and you heard from both of them and the other participants in the Invisible Monster documentary hey pick these non-white males marginalized males and females <laughs> nobody can nobody who will be missed incidentally you also heard the use of liquor weed money to lure desperate people into these sexual situations where maybe they get a few nickels and you also heard Dahmer a Gary Ridgeway talked about as normal guys average guy same thing they said about Dominic harmless that must be synonymous with white 
context of white supremacy fred rosen's the bayou strangler catherine massey book club at the cows Chapter 10, Dirt Bikes at Dusk, Terrebonne Parish, February 2005. It was another sleepless night for Dennis Thornton. There had been many of these, as he struggled to see what he hadn't yet, some piece of evidence, some clue that would lead him to the killer. He had heard of the Matthews murder and the grisly discovery of Barnett's body. In the latter case, the coroner could not establish cause of death because the decomposition was too well along. Despite that failure, and the failure to link conclusively the Matthews and Barnett cases to the serial killer, behind the scenes the detectives strongly suspected they were related. He didn't pause to consider the guy's kill total and where he stood in U.S. criminal history. That, however, would have provided some perspective not to mention a great story for any reporter smart enough to pay attention. Had they compared their killer's total number of victims, the Louisiana cops would have discovered that their murderer was indistinguished company. Dominique had now killed as many as Jeffrey Dahmer, a.k.a. the Milwaukee cannibal, with 15 murders. Unless he was caught quickly, he would exceed that. But as far as the detectives were concerned, they had an unknown serial killer on their hands, who moved freely from parish to parish, leaving a trail of bodies behind him. Now he appeared to be concentrating on Terrebonne Parish. It was therefore a logical assumption that he was living some place in the parish, which appeared to be his comfort zone. Some serial killers would remain forever at large were it not for some subconscious action, usually a slight mistake, that lead the police to them. Long Island serial killer Joel Rifkin, for example, was spotted by police because there was a body part hanging out the back door of his van. Some may even expose themselves deliberately. Ted Bundy was a lousy driver. His erratic driving led to his arrest twice, the second time after he had escaped, for the second time. In cases where the cops don't know who done it, Suspects are brought in for questioning. But suspicions are not enough, so suspects are released if there isn't evidence of their guilt. Then, after committing more murders and getting away with them, the serial killer will often confess to the crimes. Kendall Francois, a.k.a. the Poughkeepsie serial killer, was originally brought in for questioning and even passed a lie detector test. After a victim escaped his clutches in 1998, he was brought in again for questioning. This time, he couldn't keep his mouth shut and confessed to killing eight women and using his house as a body dump. Admissions of this kind have nothing to do with getting it off your conscience. Serial killers don't have one. Otherwise, they couldn't do what they do. No, the confession is a boast of what he has done. Sometimes a confession can even be used to save a killer's life. Attorney Clarence Darrow showed that in the Leopold and Loeb case. 
First, he got the thrill killers to plead guilty to murdering little Bobby Franks. And then he argued for their lives before the trial judge. Darrow opposed the death penalty. In the end, the judge sided with Darrow and spared the murderers' lives instead of hanging them. But in that case, both suspects emerged quickly. Here, investigators did not know who the killer was, but they knew he was smart. Forensically aware, he didn't leave anything behind. That made the job more difficult. What was it that made him kill at some times and not at others? Thornton was unable to answer that question. He also couldn't figure out how the killer picked up his victims or talked them into trusting him. The questions continued to swirl around in his mind, unanswered. The Homa Shrine Center, or club as the locals referred to it, was located right in front of the airbase. Everyone called it the airbase, but it was actually a small airport, used primarily by oil companies with offices in the Homa area. The Shrine Center itself, which one passed before getting to the airbase, was a wooden, clabbered building, weathered enough to say, encouragingly, that it had seen better days. Their origins tracing back to 1870, the Shriners had, by the 21st century, become an international club devoted to good works through its Shriners Hospital. Behind the Shrine Center was an open, grassy field leading up to a forest. The whole area was deserted at night. It was evening, February 19, 2005, and the Shrine Center looked ghostly. The field behind it was just a sheet of solid black darkness until it was suddenly lit up by the headlights of Dominique's Sonoma. He knew the place because he'd read the meter there. No one noticed him or his automobile. The next day, Steve Pym and his son Vincent decided to go to the airbase to ride their dirt bikes. As they were loading the bikes, friend Donald Clendenin showed up to visit then asked to go along. So Pim threw in a third dirt bike, and off they went for a few hours of riding. The three had been dirt biking around the Shriners building and airfield a short while when Clendenin caught a flash of clothing in the grass. On closer inspection, he saw that the clothes were actually covering a body and set off instantly to tell Pim. Pim was startled by his urgency. Up ahead, Clendenin was riding toward him wildly, waving him down. Pym reached Clendenin first, who frantically explained the situation. Pym turned fast and shouted at his son, who attempted to follow. Stay away! Pym followed Clendenin back to the body. When Clendenin started to reach down, Pym said, No, if the guy's drunk, he might get up fighting. Pym had seen a beer bottle in a tree. To him, it looked like the guy had just passed out. Then again, he didn't have a shirt on. Also, he was wearing jeans and socks, but no shoes. Clendenin stooped down to see if the stranger was still breathing. He didn't appear to be. His wrists and back looked blue. Flies were swarming around him. Pym pulled out his cell phone. In the eight years Dominique had been operating... Cell phones had become a common pocket item. Pym dialed 911. 
I want to report the discovery of a body. He gave their location, then waited for police. Next, Pim dialed his mother to come pick up his son. He needed his kid away from the scene. The last thing any child needs to see is a dead body. Once again, Detective Simon Fryman of the Homa Police Department got the call at home. Respond to the rear of the Shriner building on Moffat Road in reference to a body that has been discovered, the dispatcher instructed. Fryman drove down to the site, wondering what it was this time. He was met by uniformed officers who led him to the crime scene. Fryman saw the white male laying on his side. He was wearing only blue jeans and socks. The Homa Police Department Crime Scene Division began to search the area for possible clues. The forensic photographer took his photographs of the body and all the other potential evidence of a crime. Examining the body from the rear, Fryman saw nothing that indicated a weapon had been used. As in other homicide investigations in his parish, Fryman himself bagged the left hand of the victim and began doing the same thing to the other hand when he stopped cold. Not only did he recognize the victim, he knew him. It was when Fryman moved the victim's right arm back from his face to bag the hand that he saw that it was Leon Lorette. Fryman had dealt with Lorette in the murder of Noka Jones, not to mention the fact that he had arrested him for previous low-level offenses. How had he wound up here? I'll see you later, T. Paul, he said and walked out the door. That, as Leon Lorette had told police three years earlier, was the last thing Noka Jones had ever said to him. Now, in a terrible act of fate, it appeared that Lorette had died in the same manner as his friend. Fryman continued to bag the right hand. That's when he noticed several small wounds on Lorette's chest. He also noted what appeared to be markings on Lorette's neck possibly left by some kind of ligature used to suffocate him. Maybe it was the same killer as before? There were small particles of blood, a dried cranberry color, spattered across the body. Blood pooled from Lorette's nostrils. The shoeless feet were bagged. Another detective ran a vacuum sweep on Lorette's blue jeans for trace evidence. It was just a small cordless vacuum with a high-tech filtering system. It could sometimes yield valuable evidence, like fibers and skin scrapings. The body was taken to the Terrebonne Parish morgue for autopsy, but Fryman had more urgent matters to address. Rather than join detectives at the station, he drove straight to Lorette's house on State Street, an address Fryman had become familiar with after a series of busts. Lorette lived with his mother, who answered the door and consented to a preliminary search of the premises. Pointing to blood at the rear of the living room behind the recliner, she was panicked that her son might be hurt or even dead. Fryman also saw a thumb-sized bloodstain on the recliner itself. He realized that proceeding any further without a search warrant was constitutionally unsound. Warrant in hand, two hours later, Fryman went back to Lorette's residence. The neighborhood Lorette had lived in was a drug-infested area. Along with a team of investigators, Fryman entered the living room, where the processing of evidence began. Fryman waited it out until the specialists did their job. 
at which time the scene was released and turned over to Lorette's mother. Fryman thought it possible that the blood was Lorette's. That could be confirmed later in the day with laboratory analysis. For now, Fryman continued his investigation into Lorette's background, hoping he might find some clue to his death. He interviewed one of Lorette's friends, Mark Donaldson, who referred to him by his nickname, T-Paul. The last time Donaldson had seen T-Paul was about six days ago, Tuesday of last week, at Laverne's Bar by the Bryson Mobile Station. He was in the bar drinking when T-Paul tried to come in carrying a 40-ounce beer. He was denied entrance. T-Paul left it outside and was then allowed to come in. Donaldson bought Lorette a beer, and they drank together. After that, T-Paul left. Nobody had talked to him since, and friends were worried. Donaldson gave Fryman a description of what T-Paul had been wearing when he last saw him white muscle t-shirt, blue jeans, and a red beanie cap. Fryman immediately sought out Joey Gazzo, who was the last person to speak to Lorette before he was murdered. The 53-year-old filled in some blanks. Gazzo had seen Lorette for the last time on the previous Thursday at Lorette's house. He and Donaldson had stayed over for the night. Lorette's mother, Dorothy, was at home. Gazzo and Donaldson got up that morning and went to work with Mark's brother, Daryl, of D&M Roofing. They came home about 5.30 p.m. A short while later, he and Mark went out to go to the store to get a beer and ended up at Laverne's Bar. He had a beer and then went to the pit stop to get something to eat. When he got home, T-Paul called. I answered the telephone, and he asked me to talk to his mother. He said he was drunk, stoned, and did not know where he was. Then, all of a sudden, the phone went dead. Donaldson figured it was about 9 p.m. He also figured that T. Paul hung up the phone, or that someone did it for him. The next time I saw Mark was the next morning when we went to work. We did not talk about T. Paul at all. After not hearing from her son for a few days, Lorette's mother had gotten worried and called the police. In chatting further with the detective, Gazzo came to recall something else. A couple of nights ago, Mark and Dorothy had an argument. Mark was drunk, and he made a comment to Dorothy that the police might find her son dead, but I think it was the alcohol talking. It probably was. There was no indication that Mark Donaldson was involved in Leon Lorette's disappearance and murder. Fryman found Lorette's movements hard to trace because he moved around the street a lot. Yet the two interviews brought out important information. Lorette had made a phone call at a time that looked to be immediately before his death, or close to it. He was heavily under the influence. Fryman figured that with his judgment impaired, Lorette was vulnerable, easily enticed, a plum target for a serial killer out trolling for his next victim. The next day, Fryman received a call from a clerk at the Bryson Mobile Store. The clerk, who had heard of the investigation, told him to contact Deidre Porter. She might have some information about Leon Lorette's disappearance. Fryman called Porter, who also worked at the Bryson store. She told him that on either Monday or Tuesday, 
which would have been February 14 or 15, she had seen Leon Lorette during daylight hours speaking to a white male, about 20 years old, in a bright purple 80s model car with rims. I don't actually know Leon Lorette. He was just a guy who came to the store, Porter explained to the detective. Porter was implying, however tangentially, that a white guy in a bright purple muscle car from the 1980s was somehow involved in Lorette's disappearance. While it seemed doubtful, serial killers don't generally have vehicles that stand out, the idea is to blend in, every tip needed to be noted and checked out. But the first thing was the autopsy. Fryman went over to the coroner's office to attend the autopsy, which Dr. Garcia was in the process of performing. A sexual assault kit was prepared, and the results were turned over to Fryman for forensic analysis. Noting that the victim had been dead for about 24 to 36 hours, Garcia looked at the eyes. There was hemorrhaging in both of them. In Dr. Garcia's professional opinion, the victim was extremely drunk at the time of death, and it would not have taken much force to strangle him. Fryman went back to the department, feeling that the autopsy had only confirmed what they already knew. It was the work of their serial killer. Dr. Garcia was very straightforward. Lorette had been strangled to death in the same manner as the previous victims. The detective wondered if being drunk had in some way softened his death. Before he had a chance to sit down at his desk, another detective told Fryman that a black female and a white male had come in for an interview on an unrelated case. They had both once resided at the Sugar Bowl Motel, Fryman knew the Sugar Bowl was a notorious place for pickups. Male and female prostitutes lived there and worked the large street right in front of it. Fryman reasoned that Lorette might have been down there looking for some action when the wrong person picked him up. Soon, the woman identified herself as Marie Maples. Fryman pulled out a mugshot of Leon Lorette and handed it to Maples. I don't know his name, but I'm 100% sure I seen him in the parking lot of the Sugar Bowl last week. That was four days before his body was discovered. Garcia had said he could have been dead up to 36 hours before discovery. That left one day to account for. I lived at the Sugar Bowl Motel for approximately one year, Maples continued. While living there, I became familiar with several subjects that frequented the place. That guy in the picture you showed me, I last seen him in a white, older model suburban with another white guy. What was Lorette wearing? A white t-shirt with white underwear under it, baggy blue jeans, and a red cap turned sideways. The white t-shirt had vanished. Lorette had been shirtless when found, and no t-shirt had been located on or near the dump site. The suburban pulled up next to Laverne's bar, Maples continued. Laverne's bar was near the motel. According to Maples, the man in the picture got out of the truck, which had out-of-town plates. She couldn't remember what state they were from. When the guy got out of the truck, the other white guy behind the wheel kept tearing him up. He kept telling him that the police was looking for him and they needed to leave. Maples claimed that her memory of the person shown in the picture was so vivid because she had said to herself that he was acting like a nigger. It was the way he was dressed and how he carried himself 
as if that justified the use of the N-word. She also said that a black woman named Susan Prindle hung out with the white guy who was driving the Suburban. Prindle usually frequented room 234 or 235 at the Sugar Bowl, she said. Maples was a nosy person who obviously paid attention not only to her business, but to others as well. According to Maples, there was a short white man with a mustache in one of the rooms. The second room was occupied by an older black male. As for the white truck, it usually came to the Sugar Bowl late at night. Maples said she had seen the white Suburban recently. The white guy had worn a red cap. He had a busted limp, and it looked like it had been busted for quite some time. He walked with a limp, she said. Fryman had heard enough. He handed Maples his business card and asked her to call if she remembered anything else. A white guy with a limp? Detectives know that murder brings out the aberrant tendencies in people. They like to say they saw something, or believe they saw something, that is relevant to the case, if only for the attention. It was through that filter investigators needed to process incoming information. The Homa Courier ran a story of the discovery of Lorette's body. Most of Homa's residents didn't care. The paper would routinely report such murders when they occurred. The guy was just some hustler who got in over his head. It was bound to happen sooner or later, considering the kind of lifestyle Leon Lorette had led. That night, while patrolling the east side of Homa, Fryman saw a white Chevrolet Suburban on Chateau Court. But the man behind the wheel was black, not white, as Maples had described. As he approached the mini-mart to pay for gas, Fryman parked his car and followed on foot. He showed the man his badge and asked for his ID. The man identified himself as Lloyd Peck, and his ID confirmed it. He was surprised the cop was questioning him, because he hadn't done anything illegal. Do you know a man named Leon Lorette? Fryman asked. No, said Peck. Do you allow anyone else to utilize your vehicle? No. Fryman then quickly explained the reason Peck had been stopped. Peck completely understood. Fryman also warned Peck that he might be stopped again in the future and recommended that he comply with law enforcement. Of course, Peck agreed. Before Fryman released the man, he looked in the window of the Suburban and noticed that the entire rear seat was filled with boxes. He made a mental note and released Peck. On March 3, Fryman was contacted by Captain Malcolm Wolfe of the Terrebonne Parish Sheriff's Office. Wolfe told Fryman that the sister of one of his investigators had witnessed an individual on the airbase on February 19 that appeared to be extremely nervous. That nervous individual was in a maroon car, possibly in the same area where Leon Lorette's body was located. The next day, the investigator in question Brittany Johnson, called Fryman to follow up. She explained that once her sister, Susan Idle, had learned that a body was recovered at the airbase, she told her that a suspicious guy in a car had parked near a large tree by the Homa Shriners building. Fryman called the sister in and asked Brittany to join them. According to Susan Idle, 
While on Moffat Road, we passed the church, which is next to the Shriners Building, then the Shriners Building, when I saw the maroon car parked next to a tree. It was either a Buick or Chrysler. A white guy was standing on the driver's side doorway of the car and appeared nervous as he gazed at the passing traffic. He was smoking a cigarette, and he was dressed in a white T-shirt with writing on it, blue jeans, and like a normal haircut. As soon as I heard about the body being found on the airbase, I called my sister. A normal haircut? What did that mean? Fryman took Idol over to the airbase to reconstruct where she had been, where the car had been parked, and most importantly, where the victim had been dumped. Idol's account brought the cops one step closer to the serial killer, though they didn't know it yet. As for Dominique, his choice of victim had once again worked to his advantage. There was a serial killer running amok in southern Louisiana, and no one knew it was him. He was acting like he could get away with it forever. Chapter 11 The White Van Lafouche, Jefferson, and Terrebonne Parishes, April 2005 in his mugshot, August Watkins looked like a real tough guy. He glared at the camera, his expression stony and defiant. In death, his expression was totally passive. His fully clothed body lay in a wooded area near the Lafouche Work Release Center in Lafouche Parish, discovered by a passing motorist who immediately called the sheriff's office. The response of detectives was immediate. But once again, there was no identification on the victim. The Lafouche Parish Sheriff's Office put out a bolo bulletin containing information describing the victim, seeking help from other parishes in identifying him. Two days later, on April 11, Fryman's lieutenant handed him a copy of the bolo. Looking it over, he saw the similarity to the victims in his parish and theorized it was the same killer. Fryman then called the Lafouche Parish Sheriff's Office with the news of the serial killer he was trailing. Detective John Walker is currently investigating the incident, Fryman was told by a receptionist who was authorized to speak. He is currently at the Jefferson Parish Coroner's Office attending the victim's autopsy. Have you made an identification yet on the body? Fryman asked. Not at the moment, the receptionist stated. I'll have him call you during the day with particulars on the investigation. Ty Hutchins, a tall, lanky detective, got back to Fryman later in the day. The coroner had ruled that the victim's manner of death was strangulation. The victim's identity would be shared with Fryman as soon as Hutchins got it. A few more hours went by. Toward the end of the day, Hutchins took a drive and walked in the door of the Homa Police Department. He met with Fryman and told him that they had gotten prints off the corpse. Run through the AFIS database, August Terrell Watkins was finally identified as the victim. Watkins was a 32-year-old black man. He had brown eyes, was 5 feet 6 inches tall, and weighed 130 pounds. We have a possible address for him, Hutchins told Fryman. Also a next of kin, and Aunt Pearl Nixon's address. Fryman filled him in on his investigation. 
on the basis of the choice of victim and the M.O., Fryman suspected they were hunting the same man, the Southern Louisiana serial killer. The two detectives drove to Watkins's last known address on Isabel Street. It was possible he had been abducted from that location or near there. There might be some clues, maybe something left behind. Arriving, they knocked at the door. It was opened by an attractive woman in her thirties. After the detectives showed her their shields, she volunteered information. My name is Sandra Hooten, she said. When Hooten was told whom they were looking for, she motioned behind her. August lived behind me. It's the last house on the left, she said. But I don't think he's there. Why? Hutchins asked. He was evicted a couple of months ago. I think he was sent to live with some relatives, Hooten answered. Fryman walked to the rear of the residence. There were two other houses behind the one Hooten lived in. A look in the window where Watkins had lived revealed the home to be completely empty. Fryman and Hutchins then decided to go over to the second address they had, on Harding Street, for Pearl Nixon, next of kin. When the cops arrived, they were told by a neighbor that Pearl Nixon had just left to get a tire fixed. After a while, the detective saw a gray Dodge Neon heading their way. They thought the driver could be Pearl Nixon. She pulled to the curb and cut the ignition. Getting out, she walked around the car, and Hutchins approached her. Pearl? The middle-aged woman looked up and saw the detective's badge. I'm Detective Hutchins. I'm sorry to have to tell you this, but your nephew, Terrell Watkins, is unfortunately dead. While Hutchins was speaking to the woman, Fryman, on a hunch, had wandered up Harding Street to another residence, where he encountered an elderly black woman named Pearl Nixon. Suddenly, he realized that by some strange coincidence, the woman Hutchins was talking to was named Pearl all right, but not Pearl Nixon. But Fryman didn't pause to relay the info to Hutchins. He immediately began his interview with Nixon. I'm August Watkins's aunt, Nixon explained to Fryman. The family usually calls him Terrell. Did you know he was living on Peters Street? Yes, but I learned that he couldn't pay his rent and was put out by the landlord. She also said that he was later living with Mina Parker on Matthews Drive, but she wasn't sure if he still was there. Then Hutchins, who had just been informed of the mix-up, arrived. The questioning continued. When was the last time you saw Terrell? Here in my place, said Nixon. But he was behind my house at Susan Sisto's house. I was watching television, and I overheard Terrell say, Auntie, I'm leaving. She said he was carrying a black garbage bag and a duffel bag. That was the last time she saw him. She had no memory of what her nephew had been wearing. Fryman and Hutchins left Nixon and went over to Susan Sisto's house in the rear. Sisto told them that Watkins had come to her house on Friday morning around 8 a.m. The place was a mess, and Watkins, who lived with Sisto, had made it that way. And when he arrived, Sisto gave Watkins a garbage bag, not for cleaning up the mess, but to use as luggage. It contained some clothes she'd received from various people that she figured he could use. 
he didn't have much. She didn't know of anyone he hung with, and she was sure he had left her place in the daytime. He was probably homeless. As the detectives continued their conversation, Elizabeth Jones showed up. She, too, was an aunt of Watkins, and was in shock after hearing about her nephew's death. Another nephew, John Reed, had told her that he had seen Terrell walking through the Homa Tunnel, a dirty, smelly, pedestrian tunnel that leads from one side of town to the other. According to Reed, Terrell had been holding a garbage bag when he went through. Other relatives then began to arrive as the news of Watkins's murder spread. Family friend Carrie Prescott said that she had spoken to Watkins recently. He had left the house where he'd been living with his girlfriend, because her kids were getting on his nerves. A woman was waiting for him outside when he did. Prescott couldn't remember anything distinctive about the woman and had no idea who she was. A second friend of Watkins's, Sandy Smithers, told detectives Walker and Fryman that her niece, Francine Scott, had found a garbage bag in the woods near Jack's grocery. She wondered if maybe it was Terrell's. The detectives headed out to investigate. It was possible, they theorized, that Watkins had been abducted near the grocery store, and someone might have seen something. When they got to Jack's grocery, the two detectives got out of their car and walked toward the entrance. They were about to enter when Francine Scott appeared and directed them to an empty lot to the left of the bar Timbuktu. There, Scott showed them the bag she had found. Fryman saw that it was near a tree within a small wooded area that led to an open field. Walker noticed a partial watch band hanging from a tree. Perhaps it was the serial killer's. Calling in the criminalists, the scene was photographed, the bag and the watch band tagged as evidence, and the area scoured, with no notable results. Back at the Homa Police Department headquarters that afternoon, Fryman looked through the case file, trying to spot something he might have missed previously. It was frustrating. When would they finally catch the killer? Near the end of his shift in late afternoon, Fryman was patrolling the streets of Homa. What he hadn't told anybody was that he had previously popped the other nephew, John Railsback, on a drug offense. So when he eyeballed Railsback driving a Plymouth, Fryman stopped him to chat. Railsback said that he had last seen Watkins on Friday evening, April 8th. It was right after he had gotten off work from his job at the cleaner-than-new detail shop. He claimed that, after being forced to move out by his girlfriend, Terrell was homeless. That's how Railsback came to find him sleeping on the steps to the Homa Tunnel. Railsback recalled that Watkins carried a dark-colored duffel bag and a garbage bag with red string. Fryman asked Railsback to come in for an interview the next day. Railsback gave a formal statement, explaining he was getting off work on Friday, April 8th, 2005. It was approximately 5 p.m. or 6 p.m. when I started walking toward the Homa Tunnel, toward my home. When I got to the stairs, I saw Terrell sleeping on the lower level of the east side entrance steps. Why were you sleeping in the tunnel? He had asked his cousin. Liz Jones put me out of her house, Terrell answered. I didn't have anywhere to go. 
Why don't you go back to Elizabeth's? You shouldn't be sleeping in the tunnel. Railsback had finished his conversation with his cousin. Then he had continued to walk through the tunnel toward Margaret Street. I went to Elizabeth Jones's residence after talking with you yesterday, Railsback said to Fryman. She told me about a white man in a white truck that was looking for Terrell. I'm going to see if I can get you some information on the white truck. If I get you anything, I'll contact you. Fryman wasn't content with that response. It was necessary to trace the last steps of the victim to establish the timeline of death. Fryman had Railsback drive out to the Homa Tunnel, where Fryman took photographs of the area. The detective saw several articles of trash, but none appeared to have anything to do with the disappearance or homicide of Watkins. Returning to Jack's grocery, Fryman decided to interview the clerk, Tabitha's whirling. He showed her a picture of August Watkins. She recognized him, and then some. She was family. August Watkins's brother, Willie Salisbury, lives with me. I remember Terrell coming in the store on Friday morning. He purchased two Little Debbie iced honey buns and one Diet Coke. I didn't see him carrying anything, but I do remember him saying the honey buns were not for him, because he is a diabetic. Zwirling said that she had heard Terrell was dead. It got her thinking about who might have done it. Willie had told her that Watkins hung out with a white guy, though Willie didn't know his name. Watkins had said the white guy was a friend of his. The guy drove a white truck. Willie also told me that Terrell talked about having a girlfriend in Thibodeau. We thought he was making that up. Willie had never met the girl, but Terrell talked about her constantly. Fryman's cell phone rang. Excusing himself, he took the call and spoke to someone from dispatch. Elizabeth Jones had been calling the department repeatedly, requesting to speak with him. Ending the interview with Zwirling prematurely, Fryman went over to Matthew's drive to meet her. Terrell used to live with me, but just recently he moved out, Jones said. I have a new boyfriend, John Bolden, who is coming home soon. Watkins had said that he was going to live with his new girlfriend, Winter. She didn't know Winter's last name. But she is a short, fat black girl, she added. The next day, Terrell came back at about ten in the morning. He was looking for his social security check, and Jones gave it to him. They went to Regions Bank on Grand Caillou Road. Since Terrell didn't have enough money for an account of his own, she deposited his check in her account and gave him the cash. Common practice in impoverished communities. Driving back to her house, Watkins asked Jones to let him get out of the car at the intersection. She pulled over to the curb, and he got out. She never saw him again. When I got home, the telephone rang, and it was the white guy calling for Terrell. Fryman asked how she knew who it was. He said on the phone that he was Terrell's friend, that he has the white truck. Jones remembered coming home from Mount Pilgrim Church on Sunday, April 10, at about 10.30 a.m. She saw a white truck on the road. Behind the wheel appeared to be a heavy-set man wearing a hat. Seated on the passenger side of the truck was a black woman she knew as Winter. As the truck passed, both of them looked toward her house in what she thought to be an odd manner.
Fryman was onto something, or so he thought. He began to theorize that maybe the killer was the man driving the white vehicle, that maybe, finally, this would lead them to the serial killer. Suddenly, the door opened, and John Bolden, Jones's new boyfriend, arrived home from work. Fryman quickly explained that he was there investigating Terrell Watkins's death, and it turned out Bolden also knew him. When was the last time you saw Terrell? Fryman asked him. Friday, April 8th, standing on St. Joseph Street near an abandoned greenhouse. Elizabeth had sent me to the family food mart on St. Joseph Street. Everyone calls it the Chinese store. What time was that? Bolden figured it was about 9.30 p.m. when he saw Terrell and the woman standing there. Did you see a white truck that day? He said that he hadn't. Fryman put out a bolo on the white truck. Dispatch soon informed him that the vehicle he was searching for, that he hoped contained his serial killer at the wheel, was back at Jack's grocery. When he got to Jack's, the detective saw a white truck with green trim leaving the lot. He could see a man at the wheel. Excited, Fryman swung the wheel around sharply, turned on his siren, and gave chase. The siren pierced through the din of a too ordinary day. The blue, white, and red lights that flashed from his car were intimidating enough to make even Bonnie and Clyde pull over, which the driver of the truck did. Quickly, Fryman ran the truck's Louisiana plate through the state's motor vehicle database. Up came the owner's name, Maggie Brown. Fryman wore a sport jacket, which he flicked to the side, putting his hand on the butt of his 9mm. Sauntering slowly up to the driver's side, he saw that the driver wasn't Maggie Brown. Of that, he was positive. He was a man wearing eyeglasses and a hat. Sitting next to him in the passenger seat was a woman, possibly Maggie Brown. Fryman showed the driver his badge and asked him to step out of the vehicle. He thought he might have his serial killer. Fryman put him up firmly against the side of the truck, frisked him, and then snapped on the handcuffs. You have the right to remain silent. Anything you say may be used against you in a court of law. You have the right to the presence of an attorney. If you cannot afford one, one will be appointed by the court. Do you understand these rights? Yes, the driver said. You're not under arrest at this point, Fryman informed him, but I need to talk to you in reference to an investigation. The driver relaxed a little, though he shouldn't have. Once a cop puts on the cuffs, advises you of your rights, and won't let you go, you are effectively under arrest. He identified himself as Michael Jocelyn, date of birth, June 2, 1958 but his driver's license said his name was Jack Pennington. Taking this discrepancy into careful consideration, Fryman confiscated his license as evidence and placed him in the back seat of his car. As for the woman, she was a twenty-something Selma Davies. I don't know why we were stopped, she said, as Fryman escorted her to his car. But she did, or thought she did. I know my Uncle Mike has a drug problem, I think he gets his drugs from a family called Jones, she volunteered. Another police car arrived on the scene, and Davies was taken in for further questioning. 
She told Fryman that her uncle Mike picked her up to accompany him to a notary to witness some documents he needed to sign. Then they went to Jack's grocery to get some gas. Showing her Mike's driver's license, Fryman asked her, Why does your uncle's ID say that he's Jack Pennington from Missouri? She looked at it. I don't know why, she finally answered. But the picture is actually him. Detectives typed up Davies' statement, had her sign it, and released her. Now they turned their attention to Uncle Mike, placed in the drab green interview room nearby, with a few battered chairs and an institutional-style desk, Uncle Mike was again given his Miranda warning and then signed a waiver that allowed him to speak to police on the record without an attorney being present representing his best interests. I'm not nervous that you wanted to talk to me, he told Fryman. I'm in the process of getting my marriage back on the right track with my wife. I'll help you guys in any way possible. Fryman sagged a bit inside. The guy sounded like he had nothing to hide, but then again, so do most killers. So the detective told him that based on his statement, they would make a determination as to whether he could continue his journey to Missouri. If he was truthful and helpful, he'd be on his way. Do you know the Jones family? Fryman asked. I occasionally do mechanical work along with other odds and ends jobs for them. When I do odd jobs for them, they occasionally would pay me with crack. He paused for a second and then added for clarity, cocaine. Jocelyn was casual in the way he described the deal, and with good reason. Drug charges were minor. Besides, he carried no drugs and therefore no physical evidence. Nor would any judge allow police to admit this in a court of law, for fear of violating his Fifth Amendment right not to self-incriminate. Do you know someone by the name of Terrell who lives at Liz Jones's house? No, I don't know him, Jocelyn answered. Like the rest of the victims, Watkins, too, had a record of low-level drug dealings and other misdemeanors. To refresh Jocelyn's memory, Fryman showed him a mugshot of Watkins. Looking at the picture for a few moments seemed to jog his memory. Yes, I do know him, Jocelyn said after a while. Terrell would occasionally sell us dope. I remember someone yelling at Terrell about selling him dope and coming up short. Jones didn't get a good count. Terrell was a little off mentally, Jocelyn added. I don't see how he could be selling dope. Not that you had to be smart to be a drug dealer. Did Terrell occasionally ride in your truck? Fryman asked. No, Jocelyn answered. Well, the Joneses stated that you called their residence for Terrell on several occasions. They're lying, Jocelyn shot back. I think they implicated me because they want to get the attention off of them. Maybe a family member had done it. Or maybe the Jones family didn't want to be investigated for drug sales. Not a bad theory. No one likes to be questioned by police, let alone about the murder of a loved one. You didn't have to be familiar with a homicide investigation to know cops will focus first on family and friends. NCIS could tell you that. Yet, so far, there was no evidence tying Jocelyn to Watkins's murder, except that Jocelyn knew him had bought drugs from him, and drove a white truck that Jones's family saw and thought might be involved 
with Terrell's disappearance and murder. Fryman still had to wonder if Michael Jocelyn might be their serial killer. Or maybe he was what he seemed to be, an innocent man. You know, I really didn't know Terrell, but I would like to know what happened to him. You guys are asking me questions about him, but you're not telling me why I'm at the police department. That makes me nervous. Jocelyn was technically not in custody. He had not been charged with a crime. He could have left at any time. Part of the detective's art is getting the subject to stay put and allow questioning without being charged. Now the detectives finally told him the truth. We're investigating a homicide. Terrell is dead. Jocelyn thought about that for a moment. I'd be willing to take a lie detector test because I know for a fact that I had nothing to do with the homicide, he said firmly. This investigation may take a couple of days, Fryman advised. Actually, it had already been going on for eight years, but who was counting? Well, I'll make myself available to you guys when you need me. He didn't appear to have anything to hide, and he told the detective that Winter's last name was Lewis. Satisfied he had gotten all he could out of Jocelyn for now, Fryman released him. Now it was time to find Winter. She had, allegedly, been the one in the truck with Jocelyn when they ran into Terrell. Fryman turned to his street contacts, who told him that Winter hung with a guy named Frank Jagger. Fryman got his address from a junkie. As it turned out, Fryman knew Jagger, a tall, slim man from a previous case. Fryman got into his car and took off through the streets of Homa, eventually spotting Jagger. It was easy to find him. He drove a custom-made GTO. Using the siren and lights, Fryman pulled Jagger over. Fryman told Jagger he was trying to locate Winter Lewis. According to Jagger, Winter lived at the third trailer on Matthews Drive. He had walked her there about 30 minutes before Fryman pulled him over. She was wearing a black skirt and red shirt. Fryman followed the lead and drove over to the trailer park. He knocked on the door of the third trailer, and the tenant who answered refused to give his name, which was his constitutional right. However, the man did say that Winter Lewis was in the trailer. He then gave police, who did not have a warrant, permission to enter. Inside, Fryman and another detective found Lewis wearing the exact same clothing Jocelyn had described. She was handcuffed and taken into the Homa Police Department headquarters for questioning. The cops read Lewis her rights and then presented her with a form that waived those rights, allowing police to question her without a lawyer being present. She signed it. Are you familiar with August Watkins? Fryman began. I don't know who he is, she responded. Just as he had done with the room's previous occupant, Fryman showed her August Watkins's mugshot. I know him by the nickname Cornbread. That was a new one, Cornbread. Okay, when was the last time you saw Cornbread? Possibly last week or during the end of March on Matthews Drive. As they continued to speak, Fryman was able to narrow it down further. The last time I saw Cornbread was April 8th. That was the day he disappeared. I remember talking to him and Jack Pennington in front of the Soul Castle on Matthews Drive. 
As I was talking to them, I saw a green van with tan lines pull up, and Jack got close to it. He was talking to the guy in the van while Cornbread stood there, waiting for him. Then, according to Lewis's statement, a friend of hers pulled up in a red car. She got in, and they went to a friend's house, where Lewis stayed a while. When she was dropped off at the Soul Castle later in the day, no one was around. Another friend of mine was there, a little drunk dude. He wants to have a relationship with me. I asked the drunk dude, she didn't know his name, where everyone else was, and he just said they had left. The detectives confirmed her allegations, that she was with a white male who had a white truck. She also appeared to be the last one to have seen Watkins alive. Jack was actually the last person to be with Terrell. I don't hang out with white guys, so no one should be saying that I was seen with a white guy. She made it sound like to be with a white man was an insult. Perhaps to her it was. At this point, the phrase wild goose chase comes to mind. That's what Fryman and the police were tangled up in. It was almost like they were in a parallel universe, in pursuit of the phantom white truck with the phantom white guy driving, who might have picked up August Watkins that night and transported him to his death. Yet there was no physical evidence this story was true. But the story of the phantom van was at least partially right. The person who had picked up, strangled, and dumped Terrell Watkins and other men was indeed a white guy at the wheel of a white vehicle. Though they didn't know it yet, the police had already started to solve the case. It was time to go all the way. Context of White Supremacy Alrighty, we will resume Chapter 12 The Firecracker, the Catherine Massey Book Club at the Cows. The number is 720-716-7300. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Email until justice at gmail.com Address again until justice at gmail.com Read your commentary on the air if you have thoughts as we are pushing on through the text again we will be done next week so closing thoughts about the text what you've learned Patty LaBelle influence on Ronald Dominic all of that we will finish it up next Thursday that said lots of folks wrote in we will get right to our email see if we can get all of the emails and then get to folks who dialed in as well uh, let's see email number one one of our callers out here in the Pacific Northwest I think she actually did dial in with us last week I guess it was uh, such a what shall I say provocative uh, session read that she had additional thoughts so she wrote in as well uh, greetings Gus I have several things to say about the text that we are currently reading I have a lot of notes but I'll try to condense them number one from chapter four he did and said nothing to stand out in conversations with people he was very nice and polite and his speech peppered with yes ma'am and no ma'am like some southern gentleman 
Chapter 5, Louisiana wasn't the only state with a serial killer on the loose. Kansas was having a similar problem with another gentleman who enjoyed killing. The term gentleman appears twice in the text, both in reference to white men who are violently murdering people. Murder and rape seem to be the opposite of gentle behavior to me. Number two, and maybe it should have been number one, I've been wondering since I first heard it, when Ronald Dominic dresses up as Patti LaBelle, does he put on brown makeup to make it look like he has skin pigmentation? I've seen one photograph of his Patti LaBelle routine and to me and again photographs can be you know what type of lighting and all the rest of it that said to me he did not appear to have on anything to darken his skin tone it was just the female long hair wig makeup a dress uh, you know Fem uh, feminine attire earrings all the rest of it I think high heels and all that but uh, I did not see anything that would indicate he was this was some sort of uh, blackface routine however I only saw one image so people can research number three chapter five he's trying to kill me a man screamed as he fled from Dominic's bedroom window Lafouche deputy sheriff Jim McKay arrested Dominic for publicly for forcibly raping the partially clad young man and booked him on a $100,000 bond. I think a little more information should have been given about the victim of this crime. What, what was his age and racial classification? What was his name? I think the importance I don't think they have any of that information because they did not prosecute him. He was arrested but they never went through with the prosecution because they couldn't locate the victim. That's why none of that information is presented name none of that that's why he did not get uh, convicted and a longer sentence they had his information in the system but and I that was important to me because I'd heard that before they said we cannot proceed with any sort of criminal prosecution if we don't have a victim think of all the times that you hear people say you're not a victim of racism you and that old nut Neely Fuller Jr. turn around here talking about you're a victim of racism you are a survivor of racism that's what you are a victor over racism <laughs> you don't have a crime if there's no victim and they don't have any of that information about name age because they did not locate this victim number four Kenneth Fitzgerald Randolph Jr. The way the author wrote about him, thick lips accused of raping, can't stay out of trouble. I had a sneaking suspicion this person was classified as black before it was made plain. By the time the, co the corpse of Kenneth Randolph was placed in a forensic pathologist's table, his toe tag had changed. He had been anonymous John Doe when found upon his fingerprint identification that was changed to Kenneth Randall, giving him back his humanity. So putting a toe tag on this black male gave him back his humanity. What a sad and interesting concept. Number five, other people have already commented on the author's attempt at being humorous, but now I'm wondering if the white people who read this book actually laughed at those comments that I thought were so incorrect. Of course they did. Number six, from the end of chapter eight, but to upper level authorities, the murderer who had killed Detrell Woods and others was just one guy and the victims. Well, no one really wanted to talk about what had been done to them. There were many other murderers, drug dealers and thieves working the parishes who also needed to be caught. And maybe some of those victims were taxpayers, unlike the hustlers who were the serial killers victims. Translate the more powerful whites thought, hey, this is probably a white guy and the people being killed are niggers. So who cares? There are 
so many other Negroes who need to be arrested and jailed, and maybe these criminal Negroes are harming white people. That's what needs to be focused on, not the Negroes who keep getting murdered. Number seven, chapter nine, being the diligent worker that he was, he soon got a job with Gulf Coast Maintenance in Homa, staying six months until he quit. Then Dominic got the perfect job for someone keeping a low profile. He became a meter reader. Let's face, face it, that's the perfect job for a serial killer. The author used the word perfect twice in rapid succession to describe the decisions and behavior of this white man who routinely rapes and kills Negro males, and he calls Ronald Dominic a diligent worker. If his job is to be a soldier for his race, then yeah, he is a diligent worker. Number eight, chapter nine, during the years that Dominic abstained from killing, police made no progress in tracking him down. They knew there were 13 murderers murders in five different parishes all linked by mo it was the same in every case strangulation cops referred to them as soft kills there were no motives that could be associated with any of the victims families friends or even enemies that of course is consistent with serial killing nor did the police have a viable suspect question what is a soft kill and does rape and strangulation qualify as a soft kill? All right. Now, again, I'm not a scholar on serial killings or true crime. However, my understanding of the phrase soft kill, that would be the same thing as Joseph G. Christopher. This is where you didn't steal my woman. You didn't uh, steal, you know, some money from me or, you know, get over on me. I lent you $5,000 for a down payment on your house or whatever. And you never paid me back. You stiffed me on the loan. So I'm mad. So I got to get you. We got some sort of beef. We got a vendetta where you just Joseph G. Christopher. You know, I just eh, I'm upset with me. I'll go kill Joseph McCoy. Ah. He didn't do anything to you. You don't know this guy. There's no reason for this at all. They call those so-called soft kills hmm. continuing the police didn't even have a suspect no and I think they've said with these so called soft kills these are more difficult when there's a vendetta like it's real easy to shrink that down like oh you owed him some money oh it's real easy to lock that down when it's just random yes they said these soft kills can be more challenging to solve number nine Ch uh, chapter 9 Jerome took digital photographs of the victim prior to and during the autopsy conducted by Dr. Frank Johnson Johnson eventually concluded that whoever had killed the victim had used a lot of force Johnson's official autopsy report says that he found blunt force trauma to the right shoulder and soft tissue and intramuscular hemorrhages of the back and buttocks for some reason that was not found to be unusual. Instead, Johnson wrote signs of violence are not apparent at the scene. Cause of death as determined at autopsy and toxicological analysis is considered to be drug overdose, cocaine. Manner of death is considered to be accidental. Wow, there was so much evidence of physical violence to the body of this black male and old Dr. John writes that he was, he has accidentally OD'd. Mm, mm, mm. The mistreatment, mistreatment consistently continues after death for people classified as black. Poor Larry Matthews. 
Gus, this was an interesting book choice, but it has been very graphic and gruesome. Thanks for doing the book club. It helps me to read books that I might not choose to read on my own. That they are doing that at the library right now. You all can view this uh, King County library system. They have two challenges. I already completed one. They had the read 1000 minutes for the summer. Finished that in like a week, literally. Uh, they also have, this is for the year, you have to read a book. They have, I think, like 10 genres. And it's for exactly what she said, to read books that you normally wouldn't read. I think somebody does say read a little bit or learn a little bit about everything. And as I just said, hey, Gus T, I'm no fan of the serial killer genre at all or true crime. It's all the same thing. I'm no fan of any of that, reading all this gruesome pornographic detail. But because we read these two books, Absolute Madness, The Bayou Strangler, if you had asked Gus T at the beginning of 2022, hey, You've been doing all this research on racism and blah, blah, blah. How many racist serial killers have there been in the U.S. that we know about? I would have said one, Jeffrey Dahmer. Because of reading these two books, I now would know that the truthful, accurate answer is at least five. Jeffrey Dahmer. Gary Ridgway, that's such an Embarrassment. He's right here in Seattle killing all of these non-white females and I wouldn't even have been able to remember oh yeah, Gary Ridgway not the Green River killer, race soldier killer in Seattle uh, so Dahmer, Gary Ridgway Joey 22 Ronald Dominic and uh, I'm oh pfft. Joseph Paul Franklin think I'm gonna miss my five so bang it would have been at least five and that's who we know of eee, that is another reason to maybe read a little bit about everything and then now dang so if five of the most well-known serial killers are racist serial killers where most of their victims are black people hmm and then this is a whole genre that white people just love, devour in a delectable Negro type manner. Just consume. Oh, we just Dahmer, Dahmer, Dahmer. I told somebody they wanted us to read a Dahmer book in the book club. I looked. They have over 2,000 hits on Jeffrey Dahmer, just Jeffrey Dahmer at the University of Washington Library. In fact, they have more Dahmer hits at their library catalog than they do in the University of Wisconsin library catalog, which I thought was, what? How is that possible? They have over 20,000 hits for Jeffrey Dahmer in ProQuest. That's just going through different newspaper articles and what have you. 2 comma triple zero 20k and that's just Jeffrey Dahmer who is consuming all of this about killing and raping strangling 
and eating negras. The number is 720-716-7300. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Let's see, I'll read one more email. Then we'll nab folks who <clears throat> dialed in as well. Let's see. Uh, Alright, other folks uh, who di- uh, wrote in. Uh, let's see. Different investor. Uh, victim. He wrote in, Greetings Gus, I viewed the documentary Bayou Blue. The most poignant scene to me was when victim Wayne Smith's family visited his gravesite and the cemetery was enclosed with a six by seven foot tall chain link fence with a barking chained up white pit bull dog at the entrance. Reminded me of a prison. Hmm. I do remember that scene. Hmm. Chapter 9. Number 1. Perfect job. Low profile. Dominic became a meter reader. The perfect job for a serial killer. Probably wore a uniform which gave him additional power to scout for victims without uh, suspicion in addition to simply being white. Absolutely. Number two, official autopsy report, the blunt force trauma, right shoulder signs of violence, not apparent at the scene, cause of death, drug overdose, cocaine, accidental, (laughs) that word accidental. This seems like just another example of shoddy police work. There was no sign of violence at the scene because he was killed someplace else and then dumped. Previous uh, writer dash listener noted the same thing about that killing. This must happen on a regular basis where black people die under suspicious circumstances. And I think even Dave Chappelle, I think he has a joke about that where they just sprinkle some crack on like, oh, you know, you crack it. It's it's got time to do all this. Stay up all night long investigating some nigger crime. and We're good. And then Dominic gets to work for a decade. Dominic gets to work for a decade. Green River, I don't even know, he was in business like two, 20 years, Gary uh, Ridge with him. anyway number three Larry Matthews, drug dealer, user, somewhat homeless, how much of a drug dealer was Larry really? question mark number four, four days uh, four days later well after past the 72 hour window of opportunity in a murder investigation most successful cases are solved in that time frame no wonder so many cases go unsolved. Absolutely. Number 10, or excuse me, chapter 10. Number one, Jeffrey Dahmer, Joel Rifkin. I never even heard of him. Ted Bundy, Kendall Francis. Hadn't heard of him either. There are so many of these white serial killers, aren't there? Aren't there? That a lot of them remain obscure. Didn't I just say that? I didn't even know half of these guys. For example, Gary Heidnick. Is that it? Gary Heidnick, H-E-I-D-N-I-K, the the serial killer in Philadelphia during the 1980s, tortured and murdered women. He dismembered women, grinding up their body parts, feeding them to his dog. 
dog. Yikes, we just had the bark sound effect. And to other women he was holding captive. Are you serious, Delectable Negro? His crimes took place in North Philadelphia, and I suspect a lot of his victims were non-white. He served as part of the inspiration for Buffalo Bill, the fictional serial killer character in the novel and movie Silence of the Lambs. Academy Award doled out for that performance. Isn't that disgraceful? One of the best films also right up there in Hollywood. That's a whole franchise. of the, That would be interesting to see who the victims were in that case. I mean, Philadelphia has a large population of dark people. Number two, Leopold and Loeb. Two wealthy white University of Chicago college students murdered at 14 years old. White boy, 1924, as a mental exercise in how to perform the perfect game there's that word perfect again in reference to horribly destructive criminal murderous behavior (sighs) theorizing they would get away with it due to their superior intellect my god there we go again white people are so smart about killing we are just geniuses about killing. The crime has inspired numerous works, books, theater, film. What does it mean to be white? I think I could have put the sound effect in right there too. Caller reminded us white people kill for fun. Number three, Maple's memory was so vivid, person shown in the picture was acting like a nigger. The way he dressed and how he carried himself as if that justified the use of the N-word. Maybe a reason why Dominic chose chose him as a victim. Moreover, I suspect the author knew the context in which she was using the the word. She was probably not intending to use it in a purely pejorative fashion. I bet he wanted to give a nod to his anti-racist bona fides. That's funny. Very Tim Wise-esque, right? Hmm. Uh, until justice at gmail.com uh, I will get to some of my notes as well uh, let's see um, the number 720-716-7300 the code 564-943-POUND press star 61 if you have thoughts I'll share some of my notes and keep an eye on the switchboard and then I guess I have to read some of the other notes as well in fact to make sure I give them a chance do their shine then I'll get my notes in as well uh, get one more person who wrote in then I'll get my notes third person wrote in different investor oh this person even took time to help share the audio again we had several folks listeners investors who could have been chilling and enjoying the end of their summer and they helped make sure we had the audio ready to roll much obliged this is one uh, he writes in uh, good evening Gus Uh, John Banning, I believe, is the victim in the documentary. They got away. They just changed his name again. I think uh, so. If it's the victim, if we're not talking about Ricky Wallace, who's in Bayou Blue, we'll see if he's mentioned in this book with a name change. But if we mean the victim who escaped out the window, that victim, they never found. They don't have a name. So we'll have to see if if Ricky Wallace is renamed in this book as John Banning. Be mindful. Uh, The author said Banning was horny. See, I don't even think we got that far yet. So that maybe he renamed Ricky Wallace. I don't even think we got that far yet. Uh, yeah, see, we didn't get that far. It was said that there were multiple hits 
in connection to Dominic via DNA. The reason I don't think we got to any of this. Yeah, we didn't get to any of this. You are way ahead of us. We even had someone who wrote in and told us that they read ahead. I said, wow, reading is more important than watching television. Like, dang, they hopped ahead of the book club. That is grand, but you are so far ahead. Back to the future. We will have to catch up with you either after the second audio this week. We'll see if we get that far. Uh, so now I'll go back and get my notes. Let's see. Back and all the way up to chapter 10. Okay. Beginning of chapter 10. Oh, went too far. Okay. Beginning of chapter 10. <laughs> Gotta have the e-copy. I'm in the Stone Age here. I went back to in the past. Uh, dirt bikes at dusk. Uh, so I suspect these are white people out having fun doing their thing and we get right to the terrorism I believe terror never mind we get right to the terrorism he says uh, Dennis Thornton uh, the investigator on the case or one of the many investigators on this case he says he didn't pause to consider the guys talking about Dominic's kill total in quotes and where he stood in US criminal history that however would would have provided some perspective not to mention a great story for any reporter smart enough to pay attention had they compared their killers total number of victims the Louisiana cops would have discovered that their murderer was in distinguished company just like you all have pointed out the word uh, perfect kill total and distinguished we've had guests come on here from numerous universities across the world they are distinguished professors at their institution Dominic is distinguished in the annals of history by the number of Negroes he's killed this is rampant in white culture and I mean hey the University of Washington, as you go to the library, if you want to get some of those many, many thousands of documents on Dahmer and probably I didn't even look for Ted Bundy or Gary Ridgeway. They're right here. Ted Bundy is a University of Washington graduate. I didn't even know that. I said, man, they should have a statue to him on campus. Make sure people remember it forever. They had some fancy gala to celebrate putting the image of Bruce Lee on the steps. He didn't even graduate from the University of Washington. Ted Bundy got a degree. Go Huskies. Put a statue up to that brother at the university. So folks, never forget you dub alumnus Ted Bundy. Continuing. He was smart too. Everybody, they, that's smart, charming white man. Continues, let's see. Oh, and the right on, what I just say, what I just say, Ted Bundy, how they got all those tacky Netflix. You could waste an entire autumn on Netflix watching and Ted Bundy, smart, charming white man. Mm. UW graduate. Then what do they say? They come over, they say, First, he got thrill killers to plead guilty to murdering little Bobby Franks, and then he argued for their lives before the trial judge. Darrow opposed the death penalty in the end. The judge sided with Darrow and spared the murderers' lives instead of hanging them. But in that case, both suspects emerged quickly. Here, investigators did not knew, know who the killer was, but they knew he 
was smart. I thought this guy was a college, excuse me, high school, too much credit. I thought he was a high school dropout. What do you mean smart? What do you mean? Like this guy had watched CSI, didn't even exist at the time. Like he went to, I don't know, take correspondence courses and criminology, knew all the fancy techniques and what have you, fool all the forensic specialists and what have you and leave no trouble. What? You just, we just read the note where the guy, the pathologist looked at the body and some violence, which didn't happen at the scene. Crackhead, next, next. Come on, man. Come on. You're not going to tell me. Remember, he, he put all that time at the beginning of the book, right? He put all that elbow grease. These guys are not racist. These are not the backwoods racist cops from in the heat of the night. These guys and gals got forensics degrees and college degrees, and they are smart. And ooh, and a white college dropout was putting it on them for a decade. They got a whole team, in fact, budget, everything. They're not shoestringing it like Gus T. No, no, no. You got a whole team. I say that all the time. We don't have a budget or a staff. You got a staff and a budget and one high school dropout white man made you all look like clowns for a decade. They had a whole task force. It's not even one parish, Louisiana. They got multiple jurisdictions looking like clowns for a decade. Or it's just racism, white supremacy. Same thing they've been saying the whole time. These are Negroes. They don't even pay taxes. What they said exactly, the metaphor. Don't break your neck about it. Pointing to the blood at the rear of the living room bed, behind the recliner, she was panicked that her son might be hurt or even dead. Fryman also saw a thumb-sized blood stain on the recliner itself. He realized that proceeding any further without a search warrant was constitutionally unsound. Warrant in hand two hours later, Fryman went back to Lorette's residence. I thought this guy was so smart and he didn't leave any traces. What are you talking about? You got evidence right here. What are you talking about? That's not even the reason I highlighted this. The reason I highlighted this paragraph, I just said, I don't dig true crime. That's not my, you know, genre. Like the biographies, history books. Sometimes these true crimes, though, that's what they end up being, history books in a way. Anyway, one true crime that we read that I did enjoy, my best job by far facilitating the book club, Rental James. Now, what they just said, that is so familiar. So police officers go to a crime scene and they see blood. They don't have a search warrant. What do they do here? Let me back up and read it again. So he said, we burst in. We already got a dead body, so we know it's a big problem. Hmm. Blood at the rear of the living room. Okay. Panic could have. Yeah. Yeah. Fryman also thought thumb-sized bloodstain on the recliner itself. Mm-hmm. So forget all that. We gotta go. To, no, no, no. He realized that proceeding any further without a search warrant was constitutionally unsound. Wait two hours to get a warrant. Is that what they did? 1994. Mark, speaking of high school dropout, Mark G E D 
Furman in June 1994. Is that what they did? Blood stain on the Bronco. Ooh, 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 ooh. We don't want to botch it. Let's make sure we do this sound. For, is that what they did? Forever. My bad. Rental James. I'm sorry. I didn't watch the trial. I don't do the true crime stuff. I'm sorry. The only reason we read that book then. Jeff Tubin had kept his pants up. I probably would still think. Rental James. My bad. Rental James. My bad. Let's see. A short while later, he and Mark went out to go onto the store to get a beer and ended up at Laverne's bar. He had a beer and then went to the pit stop to get something to eat. When he got home, T. Paul called. I answered the telephone and he asked me to talk to his mother. He said he was drunk, stoned, and did not know where he was. Then all of a sudden, the phone went dead. I keep saying that that was Jeffrey Dahmer uh, drugging and alcohol to the victims so they're not really thinking correctly Ronald Dominic we even heard some of that Joey Christopher he and Ernie they would go get reefers after work and all of that sobriety would be best and especially you gotta have a drink a smoke whatever narcotic you do not want to consume anything and be around anybody classified as white strangers are you serious you literally are Russian roulette, as they say, gambling with your life. Continues. Uh, da, da, da. This is still Lorette. Even this is a white man. He was heavily under the influence with who got a whole newspaper article in the Homer newspaper, just like the white man we talked about last week. I don't know if any of these black people got a full big time article in the paper and they even got pictures of his family with Mr. Lorette, family, mother, relatives, sad, this is terrible, what's going to be done? Humanized. Uh, let's see, he was, Mr. Lorette, he was heavily under the influence. Fryman figured that with his judgment impaired, Lorette was vulnerable, easily enticed a plum target for a serial killer out trolling for his next victim. The next day, Fryman received a call from a clerk Bryson Mobile Store, the clerk who had heard of the investigation, told him to contact De Deidre Porter. She might have some information about Leon Lorette's disappearance. All that liquor in up New Orleans, I think that whole area of South Louisiana is all about partying and gambling, and that that's part of that Cajun culture. Uh, I reckon. Nothing to brag on. Uh, let's see. And then again, we got the same thing. They say the Sugar Bowl motel notorious for male and female prostitution rethinking Rufus uh, I wonder how many since we've heard so many that's the MO so many of these black males I don't think they were hustlers I don't even think they were uh, prostitutes or sex workers I think they were just victims of white supremacy desperate same thing that we heard with Katrina 17 years out desperate I don't know what I'm going to do. $30. Okay. I'll do it for $30. I think you had a whole lot of victims of white supremacy. They were just desperate. White people take advantage of many non-white people in 
desperate positions, males and females, especially sexually in children. I wonder how many of these folks are underage at the Sugar Bowl Motel and places like that. Prostitution isn't even legal. That's another one. Prostitution isn't even legal in Louisiana. Wink, wink. So, I mean, for this place, Sugar Bowl Motel to be open and known prostitution for males and females, like the guards got to be allowing this. Same thing we've heard before. White people got to be allowing this. Let's see. Segola Burns Bar. Mabel's claimed that her memory of the person shown in the picture was so vivid because she had said to herself that he was acting like a nigger. It was the way he was dressed and how he carried himself as if that justified the use of the N-word. She also said that a black woman named Susan Prindle hung out with the white guy who was driving the Suburban. Now, even that, she said because of the way he was dressed and how he carried himself, all black people don't dress the same. So, and then how he acted, you'd have to break that one down for me. Like, tell me how he was acting that he was acting like a nigger. What does that mean? Like, what was he doing specifically? Give me the behaviors and let's itemize those. So I know what you mean. I totally agree. This is him trying to get his Tim Wise on. Like, oh my God, I'm offended to the audacity after he's cracked all these racist jokes. Uh, different victims and what it remember last week and he said about Detrell Woods he had an appointment I think with like social security or something guess he won't make that appointment <laughs> after these all those racist jokes about these black males and they're like oh my god I'm so appalled you say he's acting like a nigger oh never use such a language oh it's disgusting name of Martin Luther King yes Ruby Bridges since we're New Orleans yes yes get out of here uh, let's see. Incidentally, like I said, I would have appreciated if, oh, yes, acting like a nigga. Just what does that mean exactly? With the with the behaviors, break it down. So it's like, what was he doing? Tell me, you know, all of it. Malt liquor. What was he doing? <laughs> he was raping white women. Tell me something. Um, walked with a limp. That just stood out because that was Joey Twenty Two. Didn't we hear that? Awkward gait. Seemed like something was wrong with them. Uh, let's see. I just said the Homer Courier ran a story of the discovery of Lorette's body. Most of Homer residents didn't care. At least they got an opportunity uh, to care with this white man, Mr. Lorette. That didn't even happen uh, for the vast majority of these black males, unless I'm, you know, super mistaken. Uh, I could even see what the article it's titled Murder Victims Families Wait for Answers confirmation and justice and then it's got a picture of Judy Lorette at the top and then uh, Michael Soldelier Soldelier I guess that's it Soldelier his cousin uh, let's see I'm looking through to see if they have anything worthwhile nothing worthwhile but you can go online and check it out this is from December of 2006 when they're writing about this a little bit ahead of where we are in the story but again the humanization of the white victim they didn't even have pictures of some of the family members of other uh, victims in the cases so many two dozen I don't even see pictures of anybody else 
Anywho, uh, let's see. Back to the notes here. That's in the Homer Courier. Uh, as for as for Dominic, his choice of victim had once again worked to his advantage. I don't know what they mean. If that means him somehow going back and forth, since he did pick a few white people, if that helped with the confusion, I'd like an extra sentence there. Or if he just means picking people who not taxpayers, people didn't care about, didn't have an address, that sort of thing. If that's what he means. Uh, he says there was a serial killer killer running amok in southern Louisiana and no one knew it was him. He was acting like he could get away with it forever. I mean, a decade. Lame police work. And I can't even say this dude is showing supreme intelligence, you know, with what he's doing here, as was alleged. Chapter 11, the white van. Uh, and his mugsh man. Some of the beginnings to these chapters, because this is the same way I said, uh, Detrell Woods. I'm going to be 2000, almost 2025. Remember, I have the ebook. So uh, I think this is how chapter, what is it? Chapter eight. Yep. Okay. So chapter eight, Grandpa Socks. The very first sentence is Detrell Woods was a real piece of work. And I think many of us last week talked about like that is so lame and so racist uh, to have like what the world and that's that's how you start that's our introduction to Detroit was a, oh, oh what kind of lame negro is this no count no job 15 babies raped about 15 Detroit is a teenager so I mean hey he could be 17 who knows but he was some piece of work already like oh yeah no sympathy here Good. thank god he didn't live longer and then chapter 10 how do we start there go back boop 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 oh it's not chapter 10 sorry chapter 11 chapter 11 how do we start there the white van in his mugshot August Watson looked like a real tough guy he glared at the camera his expression stony and defiant now again WTH now we started this book with the white uh, detective Bergeron I think that's how you say her name where he was all, oh, she's so sexy and buxom and curvaceous. Oh, they're at Disney World. Remember that? And I said, dang, with her children. She's all humanized. We're not even in Louisiana. We're out in Florida. The black males. Oh, oh Lord, here we go. Dutrell, you wait till you hear about this Negro. Oh, boy, here we go. August, just look at this mugshot of this coon. Oh, God, here we go. Oh, he's growling at the camera. Oh, he was fearsome. Oh, raped about 20,000 people. Growling his mugshot. The police were scared of him. What? How is that in here? Now, again, what the caller wrote in, so this whole genre, is this what it's like? We just read Absolute Madness. Did we hear the same thing with the way Glenn Dunn, Joseph McCoy, Harold, uh, Glenn Dunn, Harold Green, Parlor Edwards? Did we hear anything similar with the way the black males in Buffalo, New York City were described? Anything similar with the way that Joey was talked about? White people, we asked, who's reading all these books? Joey 22 that's a book too Joey 22 we had Matt Greider on the program who's reading all these books Jeffrey Dahmer 
Gary Ridgeway. All the Joseph Paul Frankness, a bunch of books on him too. Who's reading all these books? Oh, the nude black male body. Oh, oh, he was such a criminal. Oh, he was dastardly in life. Oh, listen, listen to his criminal record. Oh, oh, oh. and then oh, he was killed and left nude, and his buttocks were pointed towards the moon. Who is reading all of this? You got back. They just had a book on Dahmer just released within the past 30 days. It'll be 40,000 if the system of white supremacy isn't put out of business. In terms of Dahmer books, they just keep coming. Who is reading all of this? Hmm. Uh, Let's see. Continuing chapter 11. Zwirling said that she had heard Terrell was dead. It got her thinking about who might have done it. Willie told her that Watkins hung out with a white guy, though Willie didn't know his name. Watkins had said the white guy was a friend of his. Again, like, man, if the last two books that we read, if anything, hopefully that will enforce white friend. These two words should never, ever go together. You have no idea. Is my white homie Peyton Gendron? Jeffrey Dahmer? Nah, I'm good. Especially if my white homie, what do we do together? Are we sharing constructive information? Is he informing me about white supremacy racism? Helping me solve my problems? Sharing his frequent flyer miles with me? Is that what's happening? Are we getting together to go do crack? Smoke some weed? take a few shots all the above come on let's see once uh okay so they have white truck go to stop person they think it might be the serial killer turns out it's not driver relaxed a little though he shouldn't have once a once a cop puts the cuffs once a cop puts on the cuffs advises you of your rights and won't let you go you are effectively under arrest he identified himself as Michael Joslin date of birth June 2 1958 but his driver's license said his name was Jack Pennington taking this discrepancy into careful consideration Fryman confiscated his life license as evidence and placed him in the backseat of his car as for the woman she was a 20 something Selma Davies now all of this hey for reals yes take that in you can learn something from anything man enforcement officers have put the cuffs on you or whatever that is no time to relax just because the way yo you're not under arrest anything they can lie to you and as he said hey man you got the cuffs on you are under arrest. Can I go? No, you are under arrest. Behave like it. That means this is not the time to just, oh, I'm just chatting with my friends. No. Race soldiers. They are trying to get me. Be quiet. OJ something. Be quiet. I'm talking to Mark Fern. Be quiet. They probably telling racist jokes before I got here. Yeah, I'm be quiet. Be quiet. I'm cuffed. I'm a definitely be quiet. I don't know how they get these 
driver's license. So I guess I do, but I mean, man, it seems, I think I would have a lot more trouble getting Gus T and then my driver's license is, you know, Matthew Hennenbach. Like I would have some difficulty obtaining one of those in the next hmm, four months. <laughs> Say I wanted to use it sometime for next year. I think it would be, it would be a challenge. Anywho, let's see. Oh, 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 too far. Make sure I didn't miss any of the notes people shared in. And then I'll keep an eye on the switchboard as well. See if folks have commentary for folks who dialed in. Uh, other person, fourth person, wrote in written commentary. Uh, female investor, she says, uh, greetings, Gus, Cal's audience. My thoughts on the Bayou Strangler book readings thus far. Number one, the author is sexually deviant and racist. Like Pelinero, he has no sympathy for the victims and their families, as one of the callers expressed last week. He continuously sexualizes the victims in a pornographic manner, which goes beyond having access to police files. It seems the author is getting his own sexual ratification, not just selling books to a very curious audience interested in the murder true crime genre. Yes, he did sexualize Detective Bergeron, I think that's how you say it, but that man is not interested in her sexually. I believe that was done purely to sell books. He's sexually attracted to uh, the black male victims. Necrophilia. Mm, lots of that throughout the true, uh, true crime genre. Maybe I said it right the first time. True grime. Anyway, we'll pause there so we can uh, save time. Uh, didn't even finish all of our written commentary. And then if any folks uh, dialed in, have commentary as well, I can get in the rest of my notes. Also, if you have thoughts, jot them down. We'll have time once the second audio segment concludes. Uh, picking up on Chapter 12, Fred Rosen's The Bayou Strangler, Catherine Massey Book Club at the Cows, audio segment two. Chapter 12, The Firecracker. Lafouche, Terrebonne, and Assumption Parishes, 2005. Be careful what you wish for. Dennis Thornton wanted a task force to take on the serial killer. He took the murders in his own parish personally. That's what made him particularly suited for his vocation. For most detectives, personal feelings were forcibly repressed. Thornton was the direct opposite. Not only did he have feelings about what had happened, he also had theories. Thornton had already surmised that the killer was mobile, picking up his victims on the street. That was the M.O. he had established since his early activities in New Orleans at Rawhide. The killer would transport his victims, kill them, and dump their bodies. What happened in between was anybody's guess. Don Bergeron hadn't ever been on a serial killer case, except for her experience on the periphery of this one. Then again, Neither had Thornton, or anybody else. Despite its media coverage, serial killing is still a very rare crime in comparison to other types of homicide. Few cops ever work such a case. Yet in southern Louisiana, detectives in half a dozen different parishes had been chasing a deadly serial killer for eight years. 
through a new millennium without any success in capturing him before he killed and killed again and again and again. The fact that the case had stayed out of the cable channel news and therefore avoided the kind of media saturation that inevitably follows the story of a serial killer can be attributed to the profile of the victims. Dead black men, gay or not, doesn't sell on the news. White girls being killed by a black serial killer, on the other hand, that sells and gets coverage. Up in Baton Rouge, the police had recently caught the Baton Rouge serial killer, a.k.a. Derek Todd Lee. He was an African-American man who killed white co-eds, many from Louisiana State University. Because of his choice of victim, the state allocated the resources to capture him. If Dominique had only chosen different victims, whose lives were more valued by society, then the state might have acted earlier. But eventually, act they did. The numbers finally added up. The recent spate of killings in Homa had pushed the kill total to 15, high enough to get the attention of the state's criminal justice system, where it could not be denied that there was a serial killer operating in southern Louisiana parishes. Whoever this guy was, he seemed to thrive on raping, then strangling or suffocating all of his male victims. It fueled him. Who it was who made the decision to form the task force isn't clear. All evidence and official records indicate that the state was simply doing its job, finally marshalling all forces available to bring in a public enemy. Unsurprisingly, Dennis Thornton was the first one to answer the summons to help. It was April 2005 when I got a call that Homa was having problems. They had a string of unsolved murders. The state was interested in forming a task force to track down the serial killer they thought responsible. They wanted me to join, he later recalled. The state knew of Thornton's long investigation of the serial killer and that he would readily agree to help. That's why he got the first call. His experience and dedication would be invaluable. There followed a big organizational meeting at State Police Headquarters in Baton Rouge. Present were 14 cops representing six parishes and the state and federal government, all invited by Blue Ribbon Invitation. Besides Thornton, there was HOMA parole officer Tom Lambert, Jack Erskine, an FBI agent from New Orleans, and Simon Fryman, of the Homa Police Department, and of course, Don Bergeron from Terrebonne Parish. Don Bergeron's boss, Major Vernon Bourgeois of the Terrebonne Parish Sheriff's Office, realized how important this task force was. Bourgeois saw they needed the firecracker, Don Bergeron, showing the kind of leadership that helps move the country forward by obliterating gender discrimination Bourgeois appointed a woman as the department's lone representative on the task force. The parishes then brought in the work that they had done on the linked murder cases. Behind the scenes, Thornton and his parish had taken the lead in working the cases in their jurisdiction and linking them with the killings in the Homa area. FBI agent Erskine pointed out that the task force would have instant access to proprietary federal law enforcement databases but it would all come down to how well they could cooperate, whether they could tap into that unique chemistry that develops when smart, 
unbiased cops get together. I kind of liked not having any publicity on the case, Thornton said. This way we could pursue our investigation without the media being on top of our every move. He was right. Having a talking head like Wolf Blitzer reporting on the case as though it was one big carnival would not help to solve it. Thornton still couldn't figure out how the killer seduced the victims. What about the inducements for those who weren't gay? What set him off? The questions kept going around and around in his head. One thing Bergeron, Thornton, and the others on the task force could agree on at their first meeting was that all fifteen murders were committed by the same perpetrator. Because the serial killer was currently operating in Terrebonne Parish, the task force decided that their investigation would center on events there. Bergeron knew her parish, knew her people well. She had been on the job long enough to appreciate what life was like for street people, like the ones who had been killed. She knew about their peripatetic, pathetic lives. Unless you were someone who had been homeless, or a police officer interacting with the homeless, you had no idea what it felt like to not have a home, or even hope for one. She also knew the outlying areas of the parish, where you could take a road for miles without seeing a living soul. Regarding the deceased, Bergeron cared not one whit about their sexual orientation. To her, it was only relevant insofar as what it told her about the killer and his own sexual preferences. All of the deceased were entitled, just like anyone else, to the same efforts by the law to bring their killers to justice. Made no difference if they were gay or straight. They were victims. Serendipity came into play when Thornton and Bergeron met at the first task force conference in Baton Rouge in April 2005. That she and Thornton would not only get along but compliment each other was a stroke of luck, or the divine, depending on perspective and belief. Thornton and Bergeron became the lead detectives on the case, while officers representing the cream of the crop of Louisiana law enforcement rounded out the task force. They were acutely aware that the serial killer could strike at any moment, that time was severely limited. Both cops had the ability to do what was necessary in a serial killer investigation to get the bad guy. Think outside the box. Creative policing strategies and interviewing techniques would be crucial in bringing the perpetrator to ground. Thornton and Bergeron were particularly well-suited to the job. We are leaving Baton Rouge, Thornton later recalls, ready to go to work together, and Kurt Cunningham's body shows up floating in a ditch in Lafouche Parish. Just as the state was in the process of organizing its HOMA-based task force, the serial killer struck yet again. 23-year-old Kurt Cunningham lived in Thibodeau. Unlike most of the other victims, he was white. Last seen in HOMA on April 8th, Cunningham's partially clad body was discovered 20 days later in a ditch off Highway 307 in Kramer. The intervening days between death and discovery meant that Cunningham was not a fresh kill. While the coroner could not say for certain the cause of death was asphyxiation, he couldn't rule it out either. Thornton and Bergeron immediately suspected their serial killer had struck again. 
to systematize their investigation and take advantage of all their resources, the detectives developed a standard protocol on how to work the crime scene. The idea was that every time there was a killing, the evidence would go to the same lab, take the same path, and we'd do the same core investigative work. Working the crime scene, every member of the task force had a role, says Thornton. And then there was thinking outside the box. We started experimenting, getting prints from Cunningham's skin, Thornton relates. The lower humidity level allowed us to remove the prints. I saw this on CSI. Someplace, CSI star and producer William L. Peterson must be smiling. His TV show was helping to solve a real-life serial killer case. Whether it was art imitating life or the other way around made no difference. The task force was engaged in trying to put together a forensic link between the victims and their killer. Thornton and Bergeron were deep into the Cunningham investigation when the killer struck again. This time, the victim was Alonzo Hogan. He was a 28-year-old black man, last known to reside on Highway 1 in Raceland. Hogan's body was discovered fully clothed on July 2, 2005. Had Dominique's M.O. changed, or was this an isolated departure from the norm? He hadn't changed his choice of dump site. True to form, the killer had dumped Hogan in a cane field in St. Charles Parish, off Highway 306. Yet nothing showed up at the crime scene that could link the new victim forensically to the others. As for the autopsy, the coroner said that Hogan had been strangled and raped. Well, that was a link but it was frustrating not to be able to establish a direct link. Poring over old reports, looking at new ones, re-questioning relatives of the deceased and friends for any clues, Thornton and Bergeron worked from April through August 2005, trying to discover the killer's identity. Even pooling resources, it was to no avail. Nothing worked. Then, as if to rub their faces in it, the killer murdered yet again. Once more, it was a Homa resident, Wayne Smith. His fully clothed body was discovered on August 16 in a ditch off Grand Caillou Road. Smith's manner of death was ruled undetermined by the coroner. Strangling or suffocation could not be ruled out. Last known to reside on Rose Lawn Avenue, Smith, an African-American, was all of 17 years old, the youngest known victim of the serial killer. Just as with the previous murder, it was the same established autopsy protocol, the same evidence collection protocol, and the same lack of leads. Bergeron took Thornton out into the parish so he could better get the lay of the land. They started speculating about where the killer might be living. If they tried searching every trailer and house in the parishes, it would take them years. Obviously, they needed to narrow the field. While they had access to proprietary databases, they had very little in terms of physical hardware to use in the field. For example, the entire task force only had access to one GPS tracking unit. That meant one person dedicated to showing up at the dump site to get the proper GPS coordinates. Much of the task force's work was going back into the past and reading the records of the old murders, 
trying to come up with a methodology to approach them in a new, fresh way in hope of answers. As Bergeron recalls, they went through the records of killings in the southern part of the state, the ones that were unsolved. They needed to differentiate between the crimes their killer committed and the ones that weren't linked. One of the things they noticed was that nearly all of the victims had been picked up on the streets. Some were gay hustlers, some were not, but they had all been raped. She checked at the gay bar in Terrebonne Parish to see if anyone remembered anything suspicious. Nothing. No one had seen or heard anything out of the ordinary. Chapter 13 Ronald J. Dominique Assumption and Terrebonne Parishes, 2005 Though four or five victims had worn no shoes, the sheriff's conclusion that shoelessness was signature behavior turned out to be incorrect. The rest of the victims had been wearing shoes. But in analyzing the old reports, Bergeron noticed an actual common thread. The killer had picked up three or possibly four of his victims at the Sugar Bowl Motel, or close to it. It was one of his trolling grounds. And every one of the victims had previously been convicted of at least one crime, everything from low-level misdemeanors to felonies. Then there was the Lake Homa's Inn. Bergeron knew prostitutes and drug dealers hung out there. She knew some people will do anything for a hit of crack. A user needs to get dope, whatever it takes. If the killer offered drugs for sex, he'd get quite a few takers. Thornton had his own perspective. I looked at this in two parts, Thornton explained. He literally put Mitchell Johnson a few feet away from the banks. And the FBI profiler, he had originally told us that the killer lived near the airport. That would turn out to be right. Booty, where Dominique lived at the time, was only miles from the airport. The FBI came back in 2005, when the task force was formed, in a different way. There was a different tempo. All the evidence went to the same lab, the same path, the same core investigative work at the crime scene. Everyone had a role, Thornton continued. Cunningham and Smith had been murdered in the brief time the task force had been operative. What's more, those killings had been reported, publicly. The task force was no longer cloaked in anonymity. Results were expected both inside and outside law enforcement. The bosses wanted the case solved, and the newspapers wanted a follow-up story to the killings. Everyone was tense, hoping the next lead would be the one that closed the case. In the task force squad room where they were working, office space donated by the sheriff of St. Charles Parish, they had charts and maps posted on the walls with thumbtacks to literally pin down logistics. Working methodically, Thornton and Bergeron had the feeling they might be getting closer. Then Mother Nature intervened and, for a time, shut the task force down. On August 28, 2005, Hurricane Katrina hit Louisiana, calling to mind the line from John Lennon's song, Beautiful Boy. Life is what happens to you while you're busy making other plans. 
Katrina was one of the five deadliest hurricanes in U.S. history. A Category 3 hurricane at landfall, it hit the Gulf Coast on August 29, 2005. In all, 1,836 people were killed. It was the costliest natural disaster ever to ravage the United States, with damages totaling $100 billion. When the Mississippi levees gave in to the floodwaters, half of New Orleans was submerged. Even Yancey Derringer, who saved New Orleans from threatening floodwaters in the 20th episode of the eponymous Desilu TV series, couldn't have done anything about it. The city lost electricity and fresh water, becoming for a time a lawless black hole. Millions of people were homeless, fleeing on Interstate 10. Some made it down to Homa, where things were safer. The bayous had overflowed, and the floodwaters had taken out some houses and businesses that had the misfortune to be on the floodplains. The damage, however, was comparatively light. The recovery process following the storm was stymied by the federal government's strange inaction. All along the ravaged coastline, Louisiana residents waited in vain for President George W. Bush to send in federal assistance. They were left to pick up the pieces themselves. Fortunately, picking up the pieces in Homa was easier than in New Orleans. Once the floodwaters subsided, the people of Homa assessed the damage, called their insurance companies, and went on with their lives. Thornton and Bergeron were desperate to jumpstart the investigation before the killer struck again. They didn't have to wait long. Chris DeVille was a 40-year-old African-American who had a place on Roselawn Avenue in Homa. He wasn't the typical victim that this serial killer preferred. His family background was completely different. Chris DeVille came from an intact family. People cared for him. His brother, in fact, had been a cop. Whether that meant another change of M.O. or not was hard to say. Like Alonzo Hogan, DeVille's body was fully clothed, dumped in a ditch off Highway 1 in Assumption Parish. Meanwhile, the bosses were applying the pressure to Bergeron and Thornton. Whether in person or phone conferences, the message was clear. Solve the case. They had taken long enough to establish a task force, and now the higher-ups felt it was taking too much time to get a suspect in custody. But worse for Bergeron and Thornton than this pressure was the stress they put on themselves to solve it. I was so tired by the end of it, says Bergeron. Don and I wondered about one thing that was particular. The guy seemed to pick on black males, 17 to 40, with toned bodies. They seemed to be guys capable of taking care of themselves, Thornton adds. They figured the killer must have immobilized them by tying them up. But why would the victims submit to that? Still, Thornton figured that the risk to whoever was killing was minimal. The only risk was to the victim. The killer was using instrumental violence. He had the ability to hurt and did it in order to show his power and aggression. Their quarry may have known about the task force, but by then it made no difference. 
Dominique had developed a pattern of killing that overwhelmed common reason. John Banning, like many in southern Louisiana, had recently served time on a minor drug offense and was on parole. His parole officer was Tom Lambert, who, by chance, was also a member of the Serial Killer Task Force. Banning was looking to score some money. He was also pretty horny. Dominique spotted Banning walking along the highway. He drove over in the black Sonoma, pulled in in front of him, and opened the passenger side window. Hey, want a beer? Dominique yelled. Where are you going up the road? Banning came closer, leaning in on the passenger side, looking Dominique over. Dominique, in turn, had sized him up quickly. The selection process was hit or miss. Dominique figured this guy correctly for being a straight dude. That's when he whipped out the picture that he had ready to lure his straight victims. How'd you like to fuck this attractive white girl? Dominique asked. She'd really like to make it with a guy like you. Like many men, Banning began thinking with a certain part of his anatomy below the waist. Dominique certainly didn't look dangerous. Relaxed, comfortable, and horny, Banning got in the Sonoma. Dominique drove through the parish, past the town square where the Union soldiers had met their fate, then took a left up to Bayou Blue Road, where he took a second left. Don't be surprised that I want to tie you up, he told Banning matter-of-factly. What was that about? The parolee must have wondered. There's a stigma in the world about being gay, said Dominique out of nowhere. How did Banning respond? Well, when Dominique pulled into his sister's driveway, he stayed. On the other side of his sister's house were the electric and water lines attached to Dominique's trailer. Feeling he needed to get away from the shipyard, he had recently gotten it towed back to his sister's house. Then, once he and Banning were inside the trailer, Dominique began the con. I'll tie you up now. Take off your clothes, he told Banning. Where was the girl he promised, Banning must have wondered. It didn't feel right. Something was way off. Banning looked around and noticed the trailer was full of old clothes. There were Christmas decorations up all over the place, though it wasn't Christmas. And there was a portable toilet. There were even what looked like jugs of urine beside it. But it was the stuff on the floor that really bothered Banning. Stacks and stacks of gay pornography. Banning turned to leave, and Dominique didn't stop him. The trailer door clattered behind him. Banning began running toward the highway. He had the feeling that something strange had just happened, as if he had just walked over his own grave. Reaching the street, he thumbed his way back to Homa. In such a way, he became that rarity in American criminal history, a survivor of the new millennium's worst serial killer, who, as it happened, had still not been apprehended. Thornton and Bergeron discussed it for hours. The notion that an intended victim might escape had occurred to them. Supposing he picks someone up he can't handle, Thornton wondered out loud, and they don't want to stay, what then? Bergeron added. 
Thornton figured if the victim was already bound, the killer could kill him, probably with little resistance. But if the victim was unbound and decided he wanted to leave, then the killer would find himself in a spot. Would he just let him go? Until they found someone who'd gotten away, they could only guess. Thornton and Bergeron had already been through the department's archives of sex offenders, with no results. However, they hadn't considered parolees as part of their investigation. Not as suspects, but witnesses. When they realized this oversight, Thornton approached parole officer Tom Lambert to inquire if it was possible to go through his client list systematically, one by one, to ask each of the parolees if they lately encountered anyone especially bizarre, say, or someone who insisted on bondage prior to sex. Lambert readily agreed and went back to his office. He began calling, one after another, the men on his list of fifty parolees. When he got to John Banning, the story clicked. It was a few weeks ago, Banning told Lambert. I was walking down the highway when this guy came along in a black Sonoma truck. He was a fat white guy. He came over to talk to me and told me he could fix me up with this gorgeous white girl. He showed me a picture of her, so I got in the truck and he went off. Where to? Bayou Blue, Banning answered. He offered to take his parole officer out to the place. Lambert phoned Thornton and told him what he had discovered. We'll be right there. Thornton grabbed his suit jacket, motioned to Bergeron to follow him, and filled her in on the way outside to their car. Once they arrived on Bayou Blue Road, they were met by Lambert and Banning in the church parking lot across from Dominique's sister's house. Banning pointed to the trailer. Cautiously, Thornton and Bergeron approached it. Dressed in business suits, they stood out glaringly in the run-down neighborhood. Given how quiet the street was at midday, however, it was unlikely anyone noticed. Thornton opened the mailbox at the curb, and Bergeron reached in. She pulled out the mail, thumbed through it for a moment, then held up an envelope. Ronald J. Dominique, she said with a bright smile. Part 3. Closing In Chapter 14. Surveillance Terrebonne Parish, November 2005 With their visit to Bayou Blue Road, Thornton, Bergeron, and the task force now, finally, had a suspect. But that in itself meant nothing but a suspicion. They still had to put a case together, and not just put it together, but make it airtight to guarantee a conviction. They could not run the risk of the serial killer being acquitted. Bergeron and Thornton discussed it. How were they going to nail this guy? They decided to begin the process by bringing in the suspect, that was all Dominique was, for questioning. So far, the detectives had nothing that tied him directly to any of the murders. You need evidence for a conviction. Yes, direct evidence was best, but circumstantial evidence could also put the guy behind bars, or in the death chamber. Bergeron and Thornton went back to Bayou Blue Road and knocked on the trailer door. 
Dominique opened it. The detectives were looking at a short, portly, disheveled, middle-aged man in a white T-shirt. Could this be their serial killer? Was he the man, evil personified, who had raped and killed twenty-one victims? Bergeron wondered. Dominique's appearance certainly seemed ordinary, not unusual. Only in movies and on TV do bad guys look especially bad. Actors who look evil are cast in evil roles. It's called typecasting, an immediate shorthand way for directors to telegraph to the viewer who a character is. Nevertheless, Thornton had the same suspicions as Bergeron, but like his partner, he gave no indication of them to the suspect. We have some questions we'd like to ask you regarding a case we're working on, Thornton informed him casually. Would you come with us for an interview? This was part of the policeman's art, persuasion. Dominique was not under arrest, and he didn't have to go with them. The idea wasn't to spook the guy, but rather the direct opposite. It therefore came as no surprise when Dominique responded politely. Sure. Cooperating with their wishes, Dominique accompanied the two detectives to their headquarters. Inside the small drab interview room of the Terrebonne Parish Sheriff's Office, Dominique was offered a chair. The detectives took the two seats opposite him, across a table. On the table was a tape recorder. Dominique remained very calm. Strangely enough, it was the cops who were nervous. It was like, we gotta do this. I had never heard of anything like this before, Thornton said later. So many murders. All of the men raped. What kind of person would do that? The detectives, who'd never tackled such a case, nor sat in such close proximity to a potential serial killer, potentially the most prolific in the first decade of the new century, suppressed their feelings and forged ahead. They followed procedure, first reading Dominique his Miranda rights, then asking him to sign forms that waived his right to have an attorney present during questioning. Dominique complied willingly with their request. He was calm, cool, collected. Thornton turned on the tape recorder. Okay, Mr. Dominique, Thornton began in an even voice. We had a complaint from a John Banning. He's a parolee. He said he had been at your trailer on Bayou Blue and that you had tried to tie him up. I'm gay, Dominique answered quickly, perhaps too quickly. Tying up John was just part of a sex game, nothing more than that. Like many serial killers, Dominique was a con man. If he were a sociopath, it would probably have been easy for him to pass a lie detector. Because serial killers don't feel guilt over the deaths they cause, their lying doesn't usually register with the machine. Even a person who did have a conscience but remained calm while connected to the machine could sometimes pass. That's why polygraph evidence is not admissible in court. But the police had one forensic way to tie Dominique to the homicides, the recovered hairs and semen on the bodies that remained unidentified. But before the lab could test the forensic evidence, Dominique would have to consent to give them samples. Could they convince him to cooperate? Thornton posed that request. For the first time, 
Dominique broke his cool. What's all this about? He asked warily. Mr. Dominique, we're just trying to clear these cases we're working on, and so if you could help us, that would be wonderful. Norton stiffened, trying not to show his anxiety. He had nothing to worry about. His education and experience became a bear trap that Dominique stepped into when he nodded his consent to the procedure to get his DNA. I don't have anything to hide, Dominique stated. The grammar was correct. However, the words had the ring of a lie. Time to go to the hilt. What we're going to do, Bergeron continued, matter-of-factly, is ask you to sign this consent to DNA form. Bergeron was trying the warm approach that often put suspects at ease. Dominique looked over the form, saw nothing wrong, and signed it. He had a feral intelligence that had enabled him to escape the police those eight years, but he was still not a criminal, let alone legal, mastermind. With the form signed, the detective summoned police technicians. The technicians came in and took hair samples from Dominique and swabs from inside his mouth. The samples were carefully placed in evidence containers and labeled. It was important to maintain the chain of custody, so if they did get a match, a defense attorney would have difficulty challenging it in court. Now they finally had the opportunity to try their DNA tests to tie him to the murders. The samples would be sent to the police lab. Technician Alan Barry would compare them with the evidence gathered from the victims. The hope was for a nuclear DNA match that would nail Dominique conclusively. If, however, it came back with a positive mitochondrial match, that would still be strong circumstantial evidence, enough to file charges for murder. After he had done his best to help the cops convict him, Dominique was thanked profusely by Thornton and Bergeron for his cooperation. They told him he was free to go and offered to give him a ride back to his trailer, which he accepted. They drove him back, dropped him off, and then reversed direction back to their office. Now that they had a prime suspect, they brought John Banning in for questioning. He explained how Dominique had used the ruse of fucking a white girl to get him into the car. That might account for how he persuaded his straight victims into homosexual encounters. What would you have done if he tried to force you down? Thornton asked. Brother, it would have been like Pearl Harbor, Banning answered succinctly. After Banning was dismissed, Thornton had another idea. Let's go back into the database. Bergeron nodded. Maybe there was something that was overlooked. They began by opening the database of sex offenders. Let's make sure we cover the guys who were charged but not convicted, said Thornton. Surprise, surprise. Dominique had a record after all. Up came the old rape charge in Thibodeau Parish from the late 1990s. On August 25, 1996, Dominique was arrested for committing forcible rape and held on a $100,000 bond. According to neighbors, a partially dressed young man escaped from the window of Dominique's home in Thibodeau, screaming that he had tried to kill him. When the case was brought to court, the victim could not be found to testify. In November 1996, 
the judge continued the case indefinitely. It was similar to what had happened with Banning. He wasn't convicted, Thornton said over Bergeron's shoulder. And there was more. They found the 2002 assault he had been involved in. On February 10, 2002, Ronald J. Dominique screamed at a woman who, he said, had hit a baby stroller with her car. This was in a parking lot at a Mardi Gras parade in Terrebonne Parish. Allegedly, the woman apologized, but to Dominique, the picture of righteousness, that wasn't enough. So he kept screaming at her until finally he slapped her face. Once more, he was offered a deal. Dominique agreed to go into a parish alternative sentencing program in lieu of trial. In October 2002, he was released from the program, having met all conditions of his deal. It was because of Dominique's court problems during that period of time that he did not troll and kill. He was too busy satisfying the conditions of his deal on the lesser charge. Two years earlier, in 2000, Dominique had gotten a ticket for disturbing the peace. He'd pled guilty and paid a fine. But things didn't stop there. The detectives found that on May 15, 1994, Dominique got busted for drunken driving. And going back nine years before that, on June 12, 1985, they discovered his arrest for making the dirty phone calls, for which he pled guilty, paying the fine and court costs. There were also two more rape charges. Dominique had been accused of sodomizing two men. Both charges were later dropped. Let's see what happened, said Thornton. The charges were in Thibodeau Parish, so Bergeron called the Thibodeau Parish Sheriff's Office. Speaking to detectives there, she explained that they were part of the task force working on the Southern Louisiana serial killer case. Without telling them what she had already found out, she asked, Could you go through every sex offender in the parish and see if Ronald J. Dominique comes up for raping men? Keeping Bergeron on the line, the Thibodeau detectives looked, but couldn't find anything. Dubious as to their conclusion, Bergeron drove over to the Thibodeau Parish Sheriff's Office and personally went through the sex offender files herself. When she returned to Terrebonne, she held two files in her hands. Those guys claimed they couldn't find anything on Dominique, she said, a trifle sarcastically. They had apparently misplaced or just failed to find the files, which she handed to Thornton. The charges were dropped for lack of corroborating evidence, she continued. Thornton called the investigating officer on both cases, Sam Alper, who was, to say the least, surprised that Dominique was their serial killer suspect. He remembered him all right. He had this persecution complex about being gay, he said that being gay left him open to ridicule. Despite the fact that both detectives felt they were closing in, they were forced to go slowly. There wasn't enough evidence to convince the higher-ups to commit the monetary resources to surveil Dominique full-time. They could, and did, have squad cars go by his trailer. But they couldn't keep track of him 24-7. Still, Thornton and Bergeron knew they had the right guy. They needed to stop him before he murdered again. 
Going back over the old reports of the killer's murders, Thornton and Bergeron saw that at least three of the victims had been picked up near the Sugar Bowl Motel on Highway 182. Locals called it New Orleans Boulevard. Let's put a roadblock out there. It might slow him down and give him some pause, Bergeron suggested to her partner. Thornton agreed. The detectives requested that a roadblock be put up on New Orleans Boulevard until the case was finished. Cars would be regularly stopped and searched for anything suspicious. If they were right about it being one of the killer's trolling grounds, they had just cut it off. It was a good idea, but it didn't take into consideration the killer's ingenuity. While they had, indeed, cut off one of his trolling grounds, he could simply find another to replace it. Dominique was intimately familiar with Homa's unique landscape. Nick Pellegrin was a young hustler who needed money. On November 5, 2005, he was working on his house when the meter reader arrived. Pellegrin noticed he was sort of heavy, strikingly so given his short height. How you doing? asked Dominique brightly. Pellegrin answered that he was fine, just doing some work on his house. Hey, how about I come by later, after work, and we go and have some fun? A proposition of sex for money as old as the Bible. Pellegrin, who was 21 years old and white, needed the money. He readily agreed, but had to finish the job he was doing. Could Dominique come back when he was finished? Promising to do just that, Dominique returned hours later and picked him up. Dominique then drove to his sister's house. As dusk was beginning to settle in, he opened the door of his trailer. Nick Pellegrin entered into hell. Context of white supremacy. We will pick up on chapter 15 and wrap up this book next week. Catherine Massey Book Club at the Cows. Alrighty, I'm so excited. Alright. <clears throat> One, there are many, many reasons, more than we have time to get into right now, to read. One of them, we are in a system that is dominated by deception Mr. Fuller says that all the time primary method of maintaining white supremacy racism deception one thing that you can do with reading learn how do white people practice deception that's one of the major lessons that I talked about when we read Jeffrey Tubin OJ hey master how many people think OJ Simpson is guilty that right there master deceivers this book let me go back and reread what the listener said going back to our rewind here all right their question john banning i believe is the victim in the documentary that got away they just changed his name the author said banning was horny i'm thinking why is that even necessary to to include again no positive traits at all describing any of the victims also banning had a different account of how he got away including dominic driving him back not running out of the house if i'm correct i'd like to know why the details were changed pause right there this book was published in 2017 there is a documentary film that you can watch right now by you blue that was released in 2011 
six if my I'm at see 2017 2006 years you can do that on your hands right six years before this book was published there's a documentary film where Ricky Wallace by name sits down and talks at length about what happened their newspaper articles with his picture where he talks about this where they talk about the film all of it his uh, parole officer is there talking about his drug conviction so why would he feel compelled is it because Fred Rosen the late is it because he's so concerned about Ricky Wallace he doesn't want to publish a book that might become a bestseller billions of copies sold he doesn't want him identified publicly in this manner he's already been in a documentary film about all this why would you change his name I'm of the opinion since there are major discrepancies in what Ricky Wallace said which is corroborated again his parole officer white man is also in the film and he corroborates everything Ricky Wallace said so why would their accounts be different in a film that came out 2011 why would their accounts be different from what's in your book in 2007 your book with no references by the way I don't even see a reference to that documentary film where all of these people are present they have recordings of Ronald Dominic and Bergeron you can see if you think she's sexy yourself Dennis Thornton is right there Ricky Wallace correctly named is right there and you get Nikki Pellegrin right where we stopped bam his family is there you get to hear did they think he was a hustler who'd be open for a sexual proposition like that you can hear from his family he doesn't even reference that film why would that be now that's another one same thing I asked with Catherine Pellinero so is this just sloppy journalism too lazy to check out sources that were out way before you around and newspaper articles talking about all of this or is it because you're a liar you want to make up your own account about what happened here let's go back I do this right now uh, all of this about John Banning what why would now that's one even two we did this before with anagrams why would you pick that name John Banning for Ricky Wallace this is the guy who solved the case it's not great police work it's not the task force anything else it's Ricky Wallace he solved the case he's the cover of the documentary film Bayou Blue and he should be most poignant moment in the film if I had known he was going to lie like that I would have not played that number one I would have lined that up and played it right here today to make it clear Fred Rosen you're a liar go by your gravesite if I get there liar race soldier that's what I expect racists to do easily I said that last I got to come back and say the opposite of what I said last time the documentary trumps this book not even close but you can still learn a lot by reading but let's go back so John Banning we got to do this right now because this is just flagrant lying all of this John Banning like many in southern Louisiana had recently served time on minor drug offense true and was on parole true his parole officer Tom Lambert in the film who by chance was also a member of the serial killer task force Banning was looking to score some money he was also pretty horny Dominic spotted Banning walking along the highway he drove over in the black Sonoma pulled in front of him and opened the passenger side 
Want a beer? On bed. Da, da, da. Whipped out a picture. Okay. Like many men, Bannon began thinking with a certain part of his anatomy below the waist. Hmm. That's the way I would expect a racist to write about this event. Again, Ricky Wallace said he could make some money and the clip that oh, I want to play. Maybe I might even need to play it again before as we go out. He said, most importantly of all this, let me say it again. Sobriety would be best. Ricky Wallace, the most important moment in the film. He said, I wasn't thinking clearly at the time. He didn't say, I was thinking with my groin. I couldn't wait to get that. I was feverish. Pamela Evans Harris, I was feverish. That's not what he said. He said, I wasn't thinking clearly by the time I thought about it it was too late that's what Ricky Wallace said he could have just quoted that directly which would have been way better than this racist nonsense that is just a lie it's not even nonsense this racist lie about Ricky Wallace who is John Banning what is that anagram on that one as well what do you get John Banning B-A-N-N-I-N-G what do you get J-O-H-N let's see what was that about he says don't be surprised that I want to tie you up he told Banning matter of factly what was that about the parole he must have wondered he doesn't even have a name he does have a name Ricky Wallace he could have just said that the parolee criminal nigra. Uh, let's see how did Banning respond well when Dominique pulled his sister's driveway he stayed on the other side says, uh. then once he had Banning were inside the trailer Dominique began to con I'll tie you up now take off your clothes uh, where was the girl Banning must have wondered it didn't feel right something was way off Banning looked around and noticed the trailer was full of old clothes there was Christmas decorations up all over the place though it wasn't Christmas and there was a portable toilet there was even what looked like jugs of urine beside it but it was the stuff on the floor that really bothered Banning stacks of stacks of gay pornography now none of that detail is in the film uh, but I think more of that is going to come out in the book uh, Banning turned to leave Dominic didn't stop him now that's that's not what he said he said because I the most poignant moment in the film he said this exchange lasted 20 to 45 minutes pause right there you are in Jeffrey Dahmer Ted Bundy Ronald Dominic you are in their killing nest for a half hour having an argument about whether or not you're going to be tied up where you might be under the influence again all this is in a film that was published six years before this book was written he could have put that in too like all that urine and stuff that's important more of that's going to come out police investigation I, says, well, I hope later on but I mean Jesus Christ 20 to 45 minutes 
Ricky Wallace said this became a minor physical altercation where he had to use force to get Dominic to drive him back. That is not. Banning turned to leave. Banning. Dominic didn't stop him. The trailer door clattered behind him. Banning began running toward the highway. He had the feeling that something strange had just happened as if he had just walked over his own grave. Reaching the street, he thumbed his way back to Homa. That is not. That is not what Ricky Wallace said at all. At all. And his parole officer. Why? Why Why do you have to lie about all that? Let's see. Uh, I'm even backing up because even how they got this information. Let me see. They figure the killer must have immobilized them. The only risk. The query may have known about the task force, but then it made no difference. Dominic developed a pattern. I'm trying to figure out how they got him because in the film, they. It's not the police. They don't find out about Ricky Wallace. Ricky Wallace's mother tells him to go report to the police what happened because they knew about some of these killings. And he said, hey, what happened to you? That's crazy. And Ricky Wallace said something about this guy's off. I think this guy could be the killer. And he went and told the parole officer and then they went and took him out. It's not that they did something and went through. Yeah, them saying that they went through their parole suspects and got the. That's not the parole officer didn't even say that. Uh, his Ricky Wallace's parole officer was right there. Tom Lambert, he's in the film. That's not what he said. He didn't say that they went through the list and start saying, oh, we need to think about some of our sex offenders as witnesses. That's not what he said. He said Ricky Wallace's mother said oh my gosh my son is having dreams that a white man is trying to tie him up and kill him you should call the police and report that all of this is bullshit i'm sorry i'm gonna have to put that down the way it is this is a racist lie and bullshit the very people that he's talking about didn't say this why do you need to lie about this dead racist fred rosen your book is lying bullshit god I thought that was so powerful, like Ricky Wallace could have been dead. You can't even put his name in the book and then you got to make this nonsense up for what? To sell books for what? To say, ooh, we got a horny black male. Ooh, all of this is a racist lie. So this is one reason, even when you have a book that is not quality, which this book is not, you should have huge red flags. Anytime you have a book where there are no references, there are no footnotes where the authors, hey, we can say whatever we want to and it's on you to verify what we write. Hey, master deceivers, if you don't check, Ricky Wallace is John Banning and I say he's a horny nigger and do your homework or no. What a disgrace. Oh, I'm done. I don't have to say anything else. We can get the folks on the phone. I'll read the notes. I'm done. This book is total trash. Racist deception. Why lie about all that? And cause confusion. That's what racists do. Let's see. Folks who dialed in. Uh, 2262. Did you have commentary? Yeah, you heard. Yes, sir. Yes, yes. Thank you for taking my call and greetings to everyone on the line and all the listeners and participants in the book club. 
Um, I'm willing to first start off by asking a question. Is this book um, regarded as the scholarship on the Bayou Strangler, or this is something that could be found in the, I guess, uh, fiction or some kind of other department that is not uh, uh, historically referenced? I am not for sure. There are not a whole lot of books on this subject matter. This is not the only one, but I don't know, like, what's the what's considered like the definitive historical record on this case but there's so little work this has to be a candidate because it's not like this is not Jeffrey Dahmer there are not thousands of you know articles and projects and what have you so this would have to be in especially if we're just talking about written records it would have to be because there's not very much scholarship thank you so much for your your answer sir um, this book, um, I want to say first, the author, uh, I, I suspect practice white supremacy when, uh, he wrote, uh, when they first captured, or I guess want to question, uh, Ronald Dominic, they, he said they did not want to spook him. Spook is a derogatory term for black people, uh, referencing how black people have been terrorized, um, the detectives, um, they were, I guess, praised. Like he pointed out, they were praised in the book of being so educated and being so um, uh, worthy of, uh, of accolades. And as you, you know, pointed out, it was solved by a victim who was probably under um, a lot of duress and uh, from this uh, this uh, racist act by Ronald Dominic. So to me, the detectives, uh, I put, wrote down that they were aiding a murdering white supremacist. Because I noticed in another part, and again, this could be the author uh, uh, not being, I guess, truthful, how she said they handed the file over to uh, Thornton, but then they couldn't find it. So again, to me, that was an act of, um, either deception, white supremacy, white supremacy, and deception. Um, and I'll say lastly, the part about Nikki Pilgrim. Um, again, if this is, I have not seen the, uh, the documentary, so if this is true, that um, Pilgrim just agreed to go with uh, another white man, and like knowing what this would all include, uh, I would just say white men are just gay. They're just homosexuals entirely. Um, this reminds me of um, a statement that I guess a lot of people have used: "When in Rome, you do as the Romans do." And I think that's sodomy. So, thank you for taking my call. Much obliged, uh, like Mr. Uh, Nikki Pellegrim. His relatives are in the documentary, so if you are there, and they're at the very beginning. Uh, of the film so you don't have to watch the whole thing they're throughout but I mean hey if you just want to hear about his case specifically since that will, that's what we'll start next week by you blue you can watch the first 30 minutes and you'll be ready to roll for the book's conclusion uh, our caller at 2044 2044 hello man we heard yes yes we can hear you 
Hey, so uh, I don't have a question about the book exactly. So maybe I should talk at the end of the broadcast. You have a question about the book? Let's hear it. Let's hear it. Oh, no, no. I'm saying I don't have a question about the book. It's about a situation that happened to me a few weeks ago. Oh, it's not. So oh. I was wondering if I should ask. Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, let's finish the book. Can I wait? We'll see. Yes, yes. Wait, and then we'll okay. just hang tight, and then we'll make sure we didn't miss it. Let me get our okay. Sounds good. Much Sounds obliged, good. sir. Thank you for your patience. Um, Sorry about that. Thank, no thank apologies. You. No apologies. Just hang tight. Um, let's see. Um, all right, let me finish. The person who wrote in, and this, see, our caller, he wrote in, he was confused, right, about the name. He asked, what's up with this name change? Why did he do that? I even said about the confusion, there was a victim who escaped and he did leave on foot. He ran away. They mentioned it again this week. They didn't find him. They didn't get a name and all of that. So you had that incident. Ricky Wallace, he said that they had a physical altercation after this 20, 40 minutes. Oh, let me tie you up. Let me tie you up. Come on, let me tie you up. Let me tie you up. <laughs> you know, he says, nah, that's not going down. He says he has to use physical force, but he makes him, you know, get in the car and he takes him. Even that, like, Jesus Christ, <laughs> you are in a standoff with Jeffrey Dahmer or whatever, and you have to make them drive. <laughs> like, oh, my. And, oh, my God. And that's important because he said they were in the car and Ronald Dominic. So he's driving. He said he's taking his left hand and he keeps like reaching down i don't know if there's a compartment you know how some doors there's like a compartment where you could like you could have a gun a weapon whatever uh he said he kept reaching his hand down by the door as if he was going to grab something and ricky wallace told him he said after he did it once or twice he said hey man you put your hand down there again i'm gonna smash you in this face with this bottle and mash the accelerator He said Ronald Dominic stopped putting his hand down there and took him back. But I, that is a lot to leave out and say, eh, nah, I think I can write something better. I, forget that. I'm going to change his name up and do my own. Come on. And that might be the reason for the name change. If I put Ricky Wallace in, then I can't put in what happened. Again, his parole, his white parole officer is in the documentary. He corroborates everything Ricky Wallace said. He doesn't have even a reference to support any of this nonsense. I submit that's why you changed the name. That makes your lie work easier. That way, I didn't even say Ricky Wallace. John Banning. Uh, I don't know why all these people waited until like the end of the program to call in with a hand up. We've been chatting a long time. Um, let's see the person uh, I guess on Skype did you have commentary you wanted to get in oh hi um, hi Gus and the call, uh, God's listeners I just wanted to say that we're living in a system of racism white supremacy so white people are considered royal so they're they're from the royal white family so everyone who is not white is not royal so you know, it's just like the king and the queen. The king and the queen can do no wrong. Even when they're wrong, they're still right. So even, um, I don't know if anyone's noticed, there's a, 
there's a documentary about um, Elvis Presley. And, um, you know, this person was a drug addict. And he married a, he, he married an underage girl. And they just forget all about that. And then they only think about all of the nice things that he did, you know, you know, concerning he stole a lot of people's music and misrepresented himself sir, as something that he sir, wasn't. So. Do you have comments about the book? Sorry, sorry, sorry. This is never for tangents. This is never for tangents. Do you have comments about the book? Okay, well, with the book, in terms of the book, um, it's just the way how they, they described the... the um, I guess what I was just saying before is in terms of the book is that um, they're just putting white people in positive light and then they put the non-white person in the not so positive light. So that's what I was talking about when I was talking about the system of racism, um, white supremacy. I'm sorry for uh, speechifying. I kind of got off topic there. Much obliged, much obliged. I just say that because that happens frequently with the book club and so much of it. That is a part of deception. You really have to be into details and specifics. We haven't mentioned Elvis Presley at all in this text, I don't think. Uh, our listener specifically, she wrote in. Uh, I started, I read one of her comments and then we went to the audio. Continuing, picking up with number two, I counted three racist jokes in last week's reading. The one about Detrell Woods missed social services appointment we talked about that one last week the second one about annika jones love for his girlfriend perhaps making a difference to his life of crime and the third that annika jones would not have to worry about the impact of smoking on his 26 year old lungs (laughs) number three did i hear correctly that dominique had a girlfriend white women are very happy to live a life of deceit and are trying to convince black women this is okay I don't think it was certainly anything recently and I think he's been saying he's gay uh, excuse me uh, well yeah gay I said, what was I looking for I don't know what I was like. yes he's been saying he's gay the whole time so I don't recall him having a girlfriend like not in no I don't remember that one he's been saying he's gay and persecuted for it the whole time uh why does Richard receive hate mail when discussing issues of child abuse, Dr. Richard, by the Catholic Church? Rhetorical question, white people do not care about children. Played that report last week when talking about the FBI investigation into the uh, child rape at the New Orleans diocese. Number five, why is the diocese allowed to claim bankruptcy? The Catholic Church is not bankrupt. I hope the victims are seeking ways to link their claims back to the Vatican for their criminal policies. I think some of the white people are trying to do so. Number six, why is there any ambiguity on the age of consent? The Man Act discussion on ways to bring sexual abusers in the Catholic Church was interesting, but the fact that there's enough, there, there are enough existing laws to bring them to justice. What is missing is the will to do so. Absolutely agreed. White people don't care about children. Number seven, at the start of last week's book reading, you played several news items about sex abuse in the Catholic Church. I counted at least seven instances where they referred to credible accusations against priests of sexual abuse what exactly does this mean how many accusations are there of which x number are credible the listener is correct the catholic church is a legally sanctioned pedophile ring as to my understanding 
credible accusations generally in these uh, in this context when they're talking about child rape Catholic Church they mean generally that this is someone who was not criminally prosecuted but they have collected enough evidence that it would seem logical reasonable to conclude yes this person was engaged in some sort of criminal sexual misconduct with children that's what it means there might not have been a criminal prosecution and in many instances they lied to not contact police to make it so but there there is enough evidence that a reasonable person a sane person would conclude yes this person this accuser probably did do these rapes that's what it means uh, unless I'm misinformed credible accusations number eight finally if the people living in the area where the murders took place know the gay club is a place where older men know they can pick up young men for sex so do the police Duh. and could put a stop to it if they were interested echo echo I thought I said that if this information can be circulated but not information on a serial killer in the area facts Facts. We, matter of fact, we said that two times. Many listeners, they said that when we started absolute madness, like, hey, first 48 hours, like, whoa, we got four deaths of black males. Get on it. Let them know. And that didn't happen then either. Psh, nobody who will be missed. Uh, let's see. I really I don't really have any. I was going to point out that he also just gave factual errors. Uh, about the victims and who was the youngest but I mean that you know really pales in uh, comparison because he said this week that Wayne Smith was the youngest serial killer victim uh, to date and that is not true Joseph Brown 16 he said that in his book I just had to go back because we talked about that we had listeners who said hey he is raping and killing children why isn't that news Mr. Brown excuse me I'm saying Mr. but he was 16 Joseph Brown 16 you can't even, that's what I mean, the sloppiness, pfft, it's racism, white supremacy, I mean, come on. I had other highlights, but I will pause there just for brevity. Uh, for our, our caller, uh, since we're over time, so it will have to be concise, I don't know what your event is pertaining to, what were you dialing in specifically to talk about? Uh, can you hear me still? Yes, sir. Oh, it was, uh, seek uh, constructive advice on an incident that happened a few weeks ago. Uh, I was shot at and I went back to go get the, like, the security cam footage from a house and that it happened in front of. And I just, so I guess it's not concise. So I guess I won't ask. I can just send in an email. Perhaps for some advice. Okay, it does sound, yes, like that would definitely take some explaining <laughs> to lay out all of that. My goodness. Right, right, uh, right, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For sure. Yeah. yeah uh, I'm glad I'm, you're yeah. safe. That I mean, wow. Here in um, Los Angeles, yeah. Man, I'm, I'm, I'm glad that you, yeah, you know, yeah, are we're safe. And I can imagine. I can imagine. Yeah. Uh, drop me an email, untiljustice at gmail.com, and yeah, I'll do my, my best. Um yeah, if you write it out, then I can share, and listeners can offer some thoughts as well. Or if you just want to keep it private, that's fine too. Yes, but yes. Un until justice at uh, gmail.com. Uh, uh, okay. Yeah, I got it. Thank you so much. For sure, and uh, I will make sure to respond. For, for we have been talking about that a lot. I mean, hey, that's even the book we're reading right now. 
It is super dangerous. Yeah, in this that's what, yeah. See, he knew when to call. <laughs> he knew when to call in. It is super yeah. dangerous. Yeah. That's why I said, if you had asked me at the beginning of the year, "Hey, Gusty, you do all this, and you know what? Ha- how many serial killers, racist serial killers, targeting folks like our caller here? You're a black, non-white male, black male or non-white male? <laughs> Leave it at that. Uh, black, black, yes." Black male, right on. Black. Exactly who Ronald Ronald Black Dominic's Maryland, cousin. We don't California, know. California, Los Angeles. Yes. California, yep. Los Angeles area. Who knows? That's area with a lot of serial killers. Charles Manson territory. Menendez brothers. All about oh, yeah, that. Right. Um, yep. Celebrate that. Make movies about it. Yes. Ah, we love it. Ah, <laughs> Grim Sleeper. All of that. Yeah. Um, right over there. Right in the yeah. See, 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 see. Make movies about it. Love it. Yep. Best thing at Ted, Ted, what did I just say? Ted Bundy. You can waste your whole autumn. Ted Bundy in it on Netflix. Oh, yeah. But if you had asked me at the beginning of the year, Gus T, how many uh, serial killers, racist targeting non-white males, I would have just said one. Way off drastically minimizing. I talk about that all the time. The danger we are in if I'm a serial killer if I just love killing he said that I didn't even read that but he said I get excited killing black males I think I missed some of our other investors notes too I get those for next week got distracted because he told such a mega lie but man we are in mega danger if I'm a serial killer and I just love killing and raping sometimes you know switch the order up whatever it is but if I love that the people nobody cares about we just automatically think you're a crackhead that's in the book we read this week that's what we think looter crackhead potential rapist hey kill the dark people that's you want to be successful for a decade you want to be successful long time never get caught blame it on somebody else get the dark people We will wrap this here thing up next week. Feel free, email your thoughts, observations, conclusions. Uh, my apologies to the folks that I missed on the email. I did not I did not anticipate such a mega lie around Ricky Wallace. Yikes. That is, I mean, we have heard some whoppers here on the cows over the years. Wow. Ricky Wallace to John Banning for a book published six years after a documentary that features Ricky Wallace on the flipping cover. Fred Rosen, man, that's what racists do. Fred Rosen, here tomorrow, neutralizing workplace racism. Man, stay as safe as you can out there. It is super dangerous. Creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people, victims of white supremacy. We ask that you help us Remain patient with ourselves. Remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times, in all places, each and every time we are in contact with another black person. It has been time. Replace white supremacy with justice immediately. Cow signing out. Thanks all for tuning in. No name calling, no gossiping. Man, be alert when you are out in public. Cow signing out. Thanks all for tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, brother. You're a victim.
I'm a victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm -hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. <laughs>